Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wrong with their procedures. So he said, go for it. And what happened? He basically financed my search for three or four months, intensive search, into the individual master file and the inner workings of the IRS, which they're, of course, published in their various manuals. So I started doing comparisons between what they say they do versus what they actually send you, and I found that there is a most interesting fraud that they have to do or have to commit in their internal records. We're going to have to do a little bit of background first, though. Do you mind? No, I don't mind at all. Okay, you are a big fan of sovereignty. We are not so-called sovereign preachers. We're not doing any of that. But our nation, as Alan, you can comment on this, our nation was founded under the concept of co-equal sovereigns. Yes. The founding fathers knew that we didn't have any more, didn't want the king's authority over here. And so they produced this really cool idea of co-equal sovereigns with rights given to us from God. That's exactly, and that's what makes us sovereign. All right, the exactly. essence of sovereignty in in the European system before, under the Holy Roman Empire and so on, the reason the king of England was sovereign was because he was the only man in England who had the divine rights of kings. He received his rights from God. That's what made him sovereign. When our country started up and they said we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, they declared that all men got their rights, from, or at least their most important rights, from God, and with that statement elevated all of us to the status of sovereigns. Now, they didn't just stop there. They were thorough in their discussions. For example, in a very nice court case called Chisholm versus Georgia, one of right. the founders, the guy, one of the 55 signers of the Declaration, uh, one of the creators of the Constitution, and one of the first justices on the United States Supreme Court, guy by the name of James uh, Wilson, wrote an interesting opinion in that case where he specifically in Georgia versus Chisholm said, now we look back in history and we see that the sovereignty, this ultimate sovereignty, has to reside somewhere over in the old country. They made it reside first in the king, and then it got basically cut down to size, and Parliament began to exercise this sovereignty. He said, but where were the most important people? The people, the ones in whom the sovereignty really lay. He says they're not even a whisper is heard in their founding documents in England. So he was quick to point out that sovereignty comes from God, and we are co-equal sovereigns, and how we're going to make that work in this nation is a really interesting story. It's, so. a story, it's an extraordinary story. It's one of the reasons if you and I are sovereigns, plural, yeah. uh-huh. the government is our public servant. And the only time the government has say in your life or mine is if one of the sovereigns, if I sit back as a sovereign, say, hey, you servants, get over here because Michael, (laughs) 
<laughs> has irritated me immensely. When well, one of know, the sovereigns calls on the servant government, said, look, you've got to settle this problem. Michael is Michael's behaving ba- badly. He's being a bad sovereign. Then the government comes in. But unless there's an injured sovereign to complain, they just, the servants leave the sovereigns alone. Well, that was the whole concept, was we were to be left alone. Yeah. So that under only about two, maybe a third circumstance, were you ever to be compelled to specific performance, as they say in the law. Only if you damaged somebody. Some other sovereign. Or, number two, you broke a contract, right? You physically damaged them, you damaged their property, or you broke a contract. They're pretty much, you were free to do whatever you wanted to do. That's right. That meant that you, let's give them an example. What if you are the king of England and I'm the king of France, and I decide in France I'm going to pass a law against you, the king of England, sovereign of England. I say, we're going to tax you, king of England. We want to tax uh, your income. And we pass a law. And we pass it along to the King of England. What is the King of England going to say? He's going to say, "Try it, Bubba." <laughs> you you send your armada up the up the uh, you the know channel. into the Atlantic, and we'll send ours, and we'll see who's going to tax who. That's correct. So in this case, the, the Spanish sent their armada, and the English rejected it. Long story. Application to this situation is you and I cannot tax each other just because they want to. No collection of yous. Well, unless we agree to. Tax me. We, we can agree to tax each other. We can agree to be subject to tax if we care to, but it can't be you know, just unilaterally imposed. One guy says, you're paying taxes, and everybody else says, wait a second, where'd you get that? Mm-hmm. We're sovereigns. We count, too. We, maybe we agree to be taxed. Maybe we don't. But it requires... The consent. What's the third sentence of the Declaration? Uh, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The governed, in this instance, are sovereigns. They have to consent. They say, okay, here's what you do. You can do this much. It's the whole idea behind limited government. The servants were given you. Now you're going to be the servants. You wash the silver, wash the dishes, wash the windows, but you don't get to set the house on fire. And the servants so said, that's that, not fun. We, we want to be the master. We don't want to be the servant. And with that kind of a background now, we can see the interesting application of sovereignty in the context of the income tax. So we can talk about that. If you well, go want. run and gun. All right, here we go. So the income tax was first started in America in the 1960s during the height of the Civil War, the Second American Revolution, as the South used to call it. In the middle of the Civil War, President Lincoln noticed that, the, as he said to his Secretary of the Treasury, the bottom's out of the tub. We don't have any money. How are we going to continue this? And so <clears throat> this is an interesting small tidbit here. Oh, I don't know if you know, but do you remember a guy by the name of William Tecumseh Sherman? I do. Sherman he was, was a, guy he was a corporal, wasn't he? Huh? He was a corporal in the Army. Oh, actually, he was the general that drove. Uh, I knew he was in there somewhere. Yeah, uh, he drove right through the state of Georgia and all the way to the coast, and Sherman's notorious march to the sea, 100 miles wide, destroying the property of everybody for whom he wished to keep in the Union. Yeah. So Sherman's got a brother. His name is John Sherman. General Sherman has a brother, John Sherman, who is a senator 
from Ohio. John Sherman passed with the help of others, but John Sherman spearheaded almost every tax that we would hate today. But John Sherman brought up this income tax. And you're tax talking about during the Civil War, John Sherman was spearheading the movement to tax the American people, raise revenue to continue to prosecute the war. Correct. So here's Correct. John Sherman in 1862, and he comes up with this concept, they come up and pass this idea to tax the income of certain people. So let's talk about that for just a second. The income tax per se, take a guess, if you would, Al, at what percentage of the American people were supposed to be taxed as a result of this income tax, at what percent of their income? Take a guess. What percent of the American people were going to be taxed by this income tax? It might even be a fraction of a percent, but I doubt that it was 10% or even 5%. What's the answer? The 1% of the American people were to be taxed at a 2% tax rate, and guess what was the subject of the income tax? Profit gains interest from people who didn't do any work, who were basically just profiting off of their investments in the stock market, in banks, and so forth. In other words, today they'd be the people who are too big to fail. That's correct. But back then, it was the very top people with a very small percent of their revenue that started the income tax. Fast forward, civil war is over. Three or four years later, they declare the income tax no longer necessary, and it's gone. Fast forward now to the end of the 80s, and they seem to be finding out that there's not quite enough of the taxation or of the typical matters with a tax, which are impost, excises, things to do with things coming into the country, out of the country, and so forth. Well, actually, they can't impose any tax on things leaving the country. So imposts and excises were the, the typical taxing methods back then, and they weren't raising enough. So what they wanted to do was go ahead and, and start up the income tax again. And in a series of court cases we don't need to go into, it was declared that the income tax was unconstitutional. So that they had a, a difficult problem. And I'm not going to go through with all the 16th Amendment and all that, but right in 1912, 1913, there was the passage of two very critical pieces of legislation in the United States House that were critical to what we now are suffering. One was the <clears throat> Income Tax Act, and actually that was pursuant to the 16th Amendment, and the other was the Federal Reserve Act, 1913, both of them. So now with that kind of background, we just kind of leave that aside and look today at where we're at with the income tax and realize that it was started, begun, to tax not people who ordinarily are just working for a living, because remember, you have a right to work. You have a responsibility endowed upon you by your creator to work for a living. Yep. So what they're trying or attempted to tax is profit, gains, interest from non-work. But the average guy was not to be taxed. Not today. So they're trying to tax the people who aren't working. That's how this started out. That's what you're, or at least that's what I think I'm hearing you say. Yeah. They started this out by saying we're not taxing the laborers. People oh. are working for a living. We're taxing the people who are 
they have, in a sense, inherited their wealth, and that might not be the correct term, but they are living off of wealth that they haven't. They're not, they're they're not, not doing it by means of work. You can clarify this better than I can. Go ahead. Right, but it's just that they don't have to labor for it. Those of us yeah. who are laborers, we can't be taxed because we're literally selling our blood, sweat, and tears, our very breath, to get not profit, not gain, not interest, but just simply a living. Dinner. Mm-hmm. Dinner yeah. for our family. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so now we've got a little bit of a problem. Those, there are many court cases that discuss this and made it relatively clear, but also at the same time made it relatively difficult because of the different forms of income tax that could be imposed. They do have the authority to impose, of course, taxes on certain things. And by the way, just this is a small aside, the Bible specifically talks about income, profit, and gain in the book of Ezekiel as being some things that are not good. In fact, the Bible specifically says taxing, or excuse me, um, deriving income from interest on your brother Jewish folks is absolutely wrong. Yeah, but they recognized you could charge the interest to the the people who weren't members of the Jewish or Hebrew tribe. They didn't. Yeah, you can tax the goy, but you can't tax members of your own community. But it illustrates the point. They they recognize that these are difficult things, and there's really a lot of economics in the Bible. Oh yes. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to get off on it, but I've talked about the story of Joseph. Yeah. Uh, he collapsed. He he said he took a whole nation of the whole nation of Egypt and put them into bondage. Everybody says, "Oh, the Jews were slaves first. Joseph enslaved the Egyptian people, and later the Egyptians managed to turn the tables and enslave the Jews. But uh, they show you, if you read Genesis, I don't remember, maybe 19, I don't remember which book, Mm -hmm. but they show you how one man with an understanding of economics, he he reduced all of the Egyptian people to subjects who were property of uh, of the pharaoh. And it's an so extraordinary today. story. It's right there for anybody who cares to read it. It's been there for, you know. And it's the same thing today, Al. We are all slaves to this combination Federal Reserve and income tax system. And how they do it is just so fascinating. For those who, who really try to understand the law, the rule of law in this nation has been phenomenal. It's built on immutable, unchangeable principles. And because this nation is not like Nazi Germany where they can pass laws and people basically follow any law that's written, we here have the rule whereby we understand the foundation, those who do, that if I'm a sovereign, I can't be compelled unless I've done something basically to damage somebody or break a contract. So I began on that principle, and I said, let's go down to the law library, the SMU law library, and let's find out the course of what's happened here. So we... I began to study not just the income tax, but various different, shall we say, appearances of, of force that the government has. And then over the course of time, I really got deeply into the IRS and found out that they don't have any power over you directly. But in their internal records, they make their records of those who refuse to volunteer for the income tax, they make them appear to have asked the IRS to file a substitute tax return for the person, 
And now, let me be clear about this. Yes. I understand. I want to be, get this clear, not just for my sake, but for the audience. What mm-hmm. you're telling us is the IRS knows it doesn't have any direct authority over us. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the IRS has, by means of fraud, I, was, mm-hmm. I suspect, they are saying, well, they asked for it. You people out there, you asked us to to tax you and to assess your taxes, and it's on that presumption that you and I have voluntarily asked the IRS, will you please tax me? Is that where you're going on this, Michael? Not quite. Not quite. You're getting there. <clears throat> For those who are what the IRS calls a non-filer, those who don't file voluntarily, well, let's back up a moment. Do you know that the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution gives you the right, protects your right, shall we say, you already have it, but it protects your right to not be compelled by the government to furnish evidence that they can use against you? I'm aware. All right. So Are you aware that applies within the states of the Union? Oh, Does yeah. it apply within the territories or districts? Mm-hmm. Just stay on that subject, though. We are in the subject of the 1040 income tax form. Are you aware that you have to swear it at the bottom now? That it has to be sworn under penalties of perjury that is true and correct. Are you aware of that? I'm aware. Okay. Well, what compels you? How does the government compel you to file a sworn document of evidence that can be used against you? Because it's sworn, it is evidence, by the way. So well, what you, gives if, them if the right to compel you to do that? Do they have that power to compel you to waive your Fifth Amendment right? They do in some places, in my opinion. They can't do it within the states of the Union. In my opinion, mm-hmm. they can do it in the territories and the districts. And from my perspective, and I know you don't agree with this, or at least I think you don't agree with this, I think there's a question of venues. In one venue, the behavior you're talking about is completely unconstitutional. In the other venue, it's okay. Well, let's just stay, though, in the 50 states, all right? Because suffice okay. to say, the territories and District of Columbia are a very small minority, and most people listening to us are not going to be there. They're within the Union or the, the regular standard state. So my point is that in the states of Texas, for example, where we are at, the government cannot compel you to file any evidence that can be used against you in any context at any time. So that's called the Fifth Amendment. Now, how do they get around that and make people file income tax returns, right? And the question could be rephrased like this. If you have a right to not provide the government sworn evidence against yourself, what happens when you don't do that? Well, they come against you with criminal charges. Do you see a disconnect here somewhere? Yeah, I do. I have, And again, I have my own theory. You were referring to the District of Columbia, for example, as one of the places where the income tax is completely legal, and the Fifth Amendment does not have a meaningful application, in my opinion. They may let you go along with expectations, but in terms of hard rights, I don't think so. Territories. Most people think the territories are something like Puerto Rico and Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and of course they are. But I strongly suspect that they have converted what passes for states of the Union. They've created the presumption that you're in the territory of Texas right now, or a, a, a rather than the state of the Union, Texas. And I know I don't think you agree with that, but... For me, that's the ex- for me that's 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 critical to the explanation. All right. Well, here's the reason why I don't agree with that. Not to put mm-hmm. you down at all. I know no, it's all right. I take no offense. 
It's a good, a good theory, and here's the reason why I can't agree with that. Is is that internal to the IRS, they they maintain a record for each person, for each taxable year. They call yeah. it a module for any given year. Okay. So for the tax year 1993, they're going to have a, a module for those who have uh, <clears throat> the people that employ them send in either a 1099 or a uh, W-9 kind of thing, whatever the forms are that they send in to report. Well, when that form comes in from an employer or from somebody that's paid money and it doesn't get matched against an income tax return, yep. this generates a little red flag. And the IRS continues to wait on it. And then if a certain amount of time goes by, they send, start sending letters out to the person if it's over a dollar amount that they deem important. Now, in any given module, that's an annual tax year, that somebody doesn't file a tax return, now this is where it gets interesting. If the amount is important enough for them to try to collect, they don't purport to say anything about your rights. They simply, this IMF, Individual Master File, is a really interesting entity. The whole program was created in 1985. And it began operations, there's a, a part of it that I'm talking about, the automated substitute for return, that began its life in 1986 during the Reagan administration in October that year. In this automated substitute for return program, they make a related database to the individual master file database. They do a little series of transactions between those two databases. One's called the, autom uh, excuse me, the AIMS system. The other is the IMS system. A little sequence of transactions, and what results is that your um, highly, it's, it's a, a numeric system that you can't just read. Everything is coded with numbers. So they make the coded numbers where you can't read it. It's hard to understand what they're doing, but they make those numbers when you get a decoder manual. They make those numbers appear to show, A, that you requested them to do a 1040 income tax return called a substitute for return. And they also make those numbers, those little coded numbers, reflect that they did a return on certain dates, even though, A, you never asked for a return to be done, and, B, they never did one. Because you can compare what they do in their record, internal records, to what they actually send you in the mail, and the most interesting, glaring absence shows up. That they claim in their official records that they will give to the Department of Justice to prosecute you, that they did a substitute for return at your request, but they never did one at all. And they just do other documentation to conceal that, to cover it up, so it's a layered document fraud scheme that I have sued the Internal Revenue Service for and the Department of Justice for using it knowingly. I'm curious whether your lawsuit involves a RICO claim or is it, uh, what, falsified records or something? What are you using for your cause of action? Well, first of all, our court systems are established to protect an individual's rights. So my rights, when the I, I have what's called a due process of law right, to have records the government maintains be accurate. The government records maintained concerning me cannot be falsified. 
not even wrong, but falsified. It's a deliberate wrong. That's a violation of my Fifth Amendment due process right. So what I've done is just simply sue them because they have sequentially, carefully falsified the individual master file for each year that they claim I was a non-filer to reflect the fact that I asked them to file a return and that they supposedly did one when the truth is they never do one. They do a sequence, as I mentioned, a sequence of other documents and covering certifications on top of certifications. And then those covering certifications they hand off to the Department of Justice to prosecute you. And the De Department of Justice duly knowing that there's something fishy in the internal records of the IRS, just takes those little layered certifications, the very top one, and says, here, Your Honor, look at this. A substitute for return was, was, was done. This, this document reflects a substitute for return was done by the IRS. Therefore, there is this deficiency amount that he owes, and there, that's why we're here in tax court or prosecuting him criminally. Let me ask you this. What is the code section, maybe the law, but what is the code section, you start there, that says the IRS needs you to ask them before they can make one of these assessments? Well, um, I'm going to have to decline to answer that for the moment because I can't remember, but here's the upshot is, is that under certain parts of the Internal Revenue Code, I believe it's 6014, you have the right, or you have, shall we say, they extend to you the opportunity for you to request them to do a substitute return for you if you want them to, as long as you're not making any deductions and it's pretty standard stuff. You just send in your, your signed form and the IRS will go ahead and do a substitute for return at your request. However, if you don't request one and they think there's enough money they can go get, they use the very same procedure that they ordinarily would use if you did request it. What this shows is the individual master file is a very carefully constructed, safeguarded sequence that you just can't go in and automatically make little minor changes to. It's called a batch entry system, and you can only make coded entries pursuant to numbered transactions. So the, each transaction that's done in there has not only a number assigned to it, but the date it was done and a 14-digit document locator number that is extremely revealing. And what this 14-digit document locator number will do is if yeah. I have submitted a memo or an IOU or anything, written something on a postage uh, on a, on a postage stamp, submit it, that gets its own unique document identifier number. And the next so document I submit, regardless it. of what it is, it gets a unique document identifier number, meaning that there is no confusion. Correct. And it's a 14-digit deal. Each digit of that document locator number tells you things. Fourth and fifth digits, for example, tell you that in the cases of individual income tax non-filers, they will make the transaction that shows that they did a substitute for return. That fourth and fifth digit reveals that it was <clears throat> that they entered in info to make it look like you asked them to do a 1040A pursuant to 6014, 28 U.S.C. 6014, when you never asked 
And the upshot, the cool part is, they never did one. But again, they wallpaper over this big gap with layer upon layer of certifications, and the top layer is the only one they ever use, and it looks okay. And nobody's looking down below, and the DOJ specifically says, don't let the individual master file come in through your IRS experts, because it will make him be questioned on every jot and tittle of the IMF. Well, it makes you wonder, the, by the way, I'm quoting to you from the criminal tax manual where the Department of Justice tells their assistant United States attorneys, use the self-authenticating certifications instead of the individual master file hard copy because you're going to get yourself in trouble, your case in trouble, if you use the individual master file. In other words, they don't know. In, the average IRS expert can't read the the master file much better than most of the people in the audience. is what Oh, yes, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you, even if they can't read it, and you've got a document locator sitting there, you would the defense counsel at SMART would say, what does this document locator mean? And you'd go through each number of that, and you'd run across the fourth and fifth digits in there, and that guy would have to open up the 6209 manual and say, well, that means uh, that uh, this person requested IRS to file a return for them. Then what you're saying, maybe, is that if you can discover one document mm -hmm. locator number mm -hmm. and you can introduce it into evidence in the court, because okay. it implies there's so much information in that number, it's not just 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. This oh. thing has significance. Each digit has significance, right. and therefore it opens the door to the whole master file. It's exactly the same out as a VIN number. Yeah. You know, a vehicle identification number? Each mm -hmm. one of those numbers that comes on a, a Ford means something. It's not as though it's just a bunch of made-up gobbledygooks. Each one of those... It's not just a numerical sequence, per se. That's right. They have a meaning. And when you get into the individual master file documents themselves, you determine, you're able to determine the actual, what they're saying does not match what they're doing. And All right. That's why, that's why they don't want the IRS income tax expert witnesses in a criminal trial to be confronting or have to be explaining the individual master file record. Yeah, I can imagine if they get into that, they're in deep. And if they see you coming with questions concerning the IMF, Right. Does that discourage them from prosecution? Oh, well, it definitely makes them think twice. Now, here's here's another part to this deal. The in, the United States Attorney General puts out this criminal tax manual, and it says for the only there's only one time in the entire manual where it uses this phrase. It may be wiser to use these um, certifications instead of the individual master file, which would open up the expert to cross-examination on every detail of the IMF. <laughs> hey, I get that. The only time you could do a search of the entire criminal tax manual, and the only time that person phrased it that way is with respect to the IMF that they know. That tells me that somebody in the Department of Justice knows that there's something in the IMF that will give the game away. And we know what it is. The fourth and fifth digits of those entries made that supposedly represent what's called substitutes for return don't exist. There's nothing there. 
It's a vacuum, Al. <laughs> I get you. I hear what you're saying, Michael. Let me ask you this. Yeah. You've learned how to read these numbers, and you've learned how to read at least much of the code in the in the master file. Yes. Have you learned this from another source, or is this all the result of your own research? Mm, I have to say that Dave Miner yeah. was a real big researcher into the individual master file. Now let's let's look at this for just a second. In your heads, guys, anybody that's listening, the individual master file printout has three different sections to it. The top part is called the identity section, and that's got all sorts of little identifiers about who you are. The next section has all these coded entries but as I mentioned, um, they're called transactions. That's the transaction section. And the bottom third, or the bottom part of the IMF record for every module, reflects what's called letters or, or you know, uh, any kind of documentation that they've sent out. So Dave Miner taught me about the top part, and he was very insistent to say there's a lot of wrong information, and he focused up on the top, but as a, a Having been a reader of the law for many years, I quickly went through, really analyzed what he was saying, and realized that none of the misidentifiers up in the top identity portion of the IMF was actionable. I just what do you mean none was actionable? You mean well, even though they were mistaken, you couldn't sue on that basis? Is that what you're correct, saying? Because they would just say, oh, that's a mistake. Oh, that's a mistake. But when we got into the transactions themselves, and we were able to discern the pattern, discern the pattern meaning they will make it look like you asked, they will make it look like they did one, but you never asked and they never did one, on a consistent basis so that there is a routine pattern of falsification of the records. When we get there, that's what you call actionable. The other parts where they say you might be uh, – you know, a person involved in this type of a business or that, those are not what we could call deliberate falsifications. They can always say, no, 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 we, we really, you know, that was just a mistake. But okay, so they part, made a mistake. You've shown that they made a mistake. Let's suppose that they have admitted that they've made a mistake. Yeah. What sort of effect the, does that have, if any, on whether or not they're going to prosecute you? Well, Is that not? They said, oh, we made a mistake, but we're still going to prosecute you? Or do no, they say, the oh, we made a mistake, part, we're going to have to drop the prosecution? Well, the top part, you see, how when they make those mistakes up in the identity portion of it, they're always able to weasel out of it. But in the transactions where they're claiming a certain sequence of events happened and they're codifying them, they're literally writing the record of supposedly what happened and falsifying a record of events, Yep. that's actionable violation of your rights. The top and part, when you say actionable, you're yeah, implying I mean, that whoever is a, whoever is in charge of those of of introducing those transactions into the record, someone might be personally liable. Well, and I don't just mean financially, but perhaps criminally. Is that true or do you know? Uh, yes, it is, but here's the, the deal. We don't really know at this point who it is that that authorized the improper use of the procedure that was created in the computer for those who ask for a return to be done 
and applied it for those who didn't ask to be done. And you know that the upshot here, it's a little complicated sounding, but the upshot is IRS, knowing that we are co-equal sovereigns and should be left alone, needed to find a way to compel people who would not volunteer into the system. So they have chosen. Now, let me ask you one other thing. When you say compel people into the system, do you mean, see, my reading is that they rely on us voluntary entering the system voluntarily they don't compel us in my in my opinion they create circumstances where we may think we're compelled but it's more a matter of deception and persuasion than it is put a gun to your head and sign that sign the form on your you know on your right hand well that was the guy just to, to clarify things my friend that i was working with literally had that basically happen to him they kept sending out criminal kinds of uh, research and, and matters to all of his customers and destroyed his company. Yeah. So they are literally, almost literally, putting a gun to his head and saying, you either go along and you sign this IMF or we're destroying you, your business, and everything you have. Well, that's what they did to me. Same way by taking my commissions, right? I didn't have a business per se. So my point is, they cannot compel you to join the income tax filing deal because of your Fifth Amendment right. But for those who know that and who don't volunteer, they, the IRS is reduced to going behind the scenes to give themselves a power Congress did not and could not give them, the power to compel you to specific performance when we were created co-equal sovereigns with the right to be let alone. Well, you leave us, uh, you know, I I, I hear what you're saying. Let me ask you this. Uh Is there a book by Dave Miner, for example, Uh where he translates the IMF code? Is there, are there documents that you recommend that people read? Is there something available in writing? Or is this yes, still in the, you, in the you know, exploration stage? What I would do is go read a copy of the complaint in my case. If the, if the people wanted to, I can give them the original complaint in my case, spells it out. And triplicate. Also, Al, you published something on your website, a letter that I sent to Miss Maureen Green of the IRS. Yeah. It's about a 10-page little letter, and it details explicitly, carefully, the exact sequence of fraud that I've talked about today. Now, you that letter that, that we talked about, last time I published something of yours on my blog, uh, I'd say it was several years ago. 2012. All right, 2012, three years ago, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that that letter still, you believe you regard the evidence in that letter to still be, you haven't learned more where you come back and say, well, wait a second, I'm going to change, uh-huh. I'm going to amend this? Or do you think no, that letter still stands to. today it's on its own? rock hard accurate. Now, here's where you can prove this. I mean, you, most of your readers will want to, uh, our listeners will want to go verify this. But I just read it the other day, and it's perfectly accurate still to this day. Minor stuff, minor, if one or two, <laughs> one or two changes might need to be made, but they're not substantive. So, here's what happened. You published that on your website, and a gentleman, an elderly gentleman who had researched 
with John Benson the entire history of the United States tax system and tax code. Yep. He saw on your blog my research that God had allowed me to do mm -hmm. uh, into the IMF. He saw that Maureen Green letter. And if you want to tell the folks that they can figure out how to find it, but it's Maureen, M-A-U-R-E-E-N, Maureen Green, and put a Google search in for Maureen Green and Michael Ellis, and it'll come up as this little weird letter on your blog. And boy, oh boy, a friend of mine now, he's a friend, saw that in 2012. Glenn Ambort saw it and said, wow, this is the missing ingredient. He knew that there was something wrong, and by the grace of God, I was able to go into the IRS guts and figure it out from their published materials compared to what they actually do. And I'll tell you, he is now using that to work with some attorneys in California in the defense of Dr. Bill Bailey in a prosecution for willful failure to file and tax evasion. They're using the discoveries of the falsified individual master file to take the IRS to the, to the map. It's a criminal case, criminal prosecution with lots of years on the line for this young doctor. And this attorney who's representing him is working with Glenn Ambort, and Glenn is teaching the attorney where the bodies are, so to speak. I understand. Fascinating. It is fascinating because this attorney already has a very good idea working in the bankruptcy court of the, as he calls it, the government is always dirty. And if the government's dirty, he says, I'm in. I'll tell you what we'll do is after the program, you can send me a list of whatever links you think are important, including to the paperwork or to the, the petition you filed into the court most recently, and I'll dig up the, uh, the Maureen Green letter, and I'll post it on the blog within the next 24 hours of relevant okay. links. And for anyone who's listening, you can visit the blog at adask.wordpress.com. And you'll find it. It'll be at the. It'll be the first uh, entry at the, at the top of the blog. Um, all right. So where do you stand right now? You filed your petition into the court. How long ago? All right. This is a very interesting deal. I'm not going to go through the whole long, drawn-out deal, but when you get involved in court cases, it is a learning experience. Uh -huh. So I initially filed in 2012 a court case. Notice that there were <clears throat> the judge found some things. The district court judge in the United States District of Columbia District Court saw that there were two which he considered defects in the case, and I appealed. And then I pretty much understood it after really working on it, and I withdrew my appeal in favor of starting a new case in the district. And court. what you're saying is you agreed the judges? Yeah, I, he the said there's a couple of defects, and you came to say, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, True. I figured out that, you know, let's just make it easy and, and let's go ahead and, and fix them because it's not that big a deal, no skin off my nose, and I just refiled the case. But interestingly, Al, how God has a hand in this, the day before I, I withdrew my, my appeal in the what's called the Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, uh, Federal District, I, the United States DOJ filed their brief on appeal. So they gave me their entire inside thinking of what they considered <laughs> were the defects of the case. They must have been so kicking themselves the in the butt afterwards, uh, <laughs> away, giving away their strategy in a case exactly where, that. in a case that had been 
no removed from filing. I'm not sure what the proper term is. What is the term for taking the case out? I can't think of it. We, we withdrew it. All right. We withdrew the appeal and refiled. We refiled a new case, withdrew the appeal, but we got their brief. And in their brief, they had ex had a very interesting strategy. The strategy was to in the, to contradict my allegations of IRS falsifying the IMF records. Yep. They would quote court cases from tax court, from the United States District Court in Chicago, and all over a little little here here and there, to try to contradict what the IRS actually does, as I had alleged clearly. Do you see what they're doing? No. I can't say that I exactly do. I mean, you are saying that you have evidence that the IRS is doing A, B, and C. Yeah, that's right. And they're coming up with court cases or whatever to support mm -hmm. their contention. No, we're not. The court, now, they were coming up with court cases from obscure, non-controlling courts, no Supreme Court cases, saying the IRS does this and this and this. Well, the problem is I am <laughs> standing here pointing to, no, the IRS doesn't do that. This is what they do here, 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 and here. So you can see their strategy was to use, they could not head on contradict my allegations, so instead they just used these court cases where judges were assuming this and assuming that, but it was contradictory to IRS's actual underlying day-to-day -day operations. Well, it sounds like they were desperate then to refine yeah. something it sounds like you had a pretty good pretty good hold on these guys, and they had to find something, anything that might muddy the water enough where they might be able to win. Well, they, of course, they are not really authorized to lie, so they couldn't lie, but if they just quote other court cases, they can at least say, hey, I didn't say it, they did, right? But yeah, I again, get you. This, this is, as you just said, they have no way to combat what I'm saying directly because it's true. So that's what that confirmed was in my head, wow, they can't touch my my allegations. So you are saying that you produced certain facts, if I understand correctly. You have yeah. alleged certain facts which they were not able to refute the facts, and therefore right. they look back into the yeah. records of one court or another to come up with something some idiot judge may or may not have said uh, in the last five, right. ten, a generalization. A generalization because we laid out for them, Al, in explicit technicolor, exactly what they do in which database to make this show up in this database, which shows that up. We laid it out. There's no way to get around it unless they just ignore it. Well, now this is, uh, are we able to continue for just a second? We will take a break here in about, oh, about 45 seconds. We'll take a, maybe a four or five minute break, and then we'll be right. back for the second hour. All right, well, just to mention this real quickly, I filed a new case, took care of the problems from the last time, got rid of those two objections, and now the judge is in deep trouble. So I want to tell you what the judge <laughs> In other words, the, judges, the judge actually educated you, and now you're yeah. using that education to put the judge and the IRS in a little, more, a little deeper than they were. Oh, yes. And so such a good thing was, I think the best thing about it was the judge was very kind to not attack me. The Department of Justice suggested that the judge attack me personally, and she simply refused to do it. 
So she made a lot of wrong assumptions, presumptions, but she was not personally trying to rub me out, so to speak. So I, for that, I deeply appreciate it. All right, let's take a break, and we will be back with Michael Ellis on the American Independence Hour in about three, four minutes. Please stay tuned for the second hour. from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. 
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Addisk, and this is the American Independence Hour. Our guest tonight is Michael Ellis. We're talking about his suit against the Internal Revenue Service. Um, our co-host is Frank Stephan. Frank is hasn't been intruding. He says he's been listening intently, but he does have a couple of questions. Frank is also the producer and uh, you know the mastermind behind American Voice Radio. So, Frank. Got yes. some questions for Michael. Go ahead and say hi. And uh, well, hi there, Michael. Happens. And I and I have been listening intently, really. And uh, I, I do have a couple of questions. You know, the IMF. I've heard about that for years and years, and I know yeah. very little about it. And right. other than you know, it's all coded and it's you know difficult to understand. And is there a a code book somewhere because yeah. most things written in code have a have a yeah. key somewhere and is it yeah. is it secret is it available yeah. is it how do people get this thing it's available it's a 6209 manual is the colloquial name for it okay so i got a copy of it al you can have it i don't care it's uh, probably not exactly the current version but it's very very good and it doesn't change a lot wow so the 6209 manual was one of the code books that we decoded the uh document locator numbers and the transaction code numbers that also talks to the whole top part the identity portion and mm -hmm. so forth so yes that 6209 manual do a google search on it i'll bet one turns up on the internet easily and, and that the top section is is my other question is that you you kind of went by that and said well you know they they weasel out of that but if they have you, my understanding anyway is that there are certain, you have to be involved in certain taxable activities. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they make a mistake and yeah. have you in one of these activities that you're not in and you say, hey, 
I'm not in that activity. Prove that I am. You can't, you know, there's no way. And they go, oh, oops, we made a mistake. Well, now, wouldn't that kill the whole case? I mean, if their case is depending on taxing you based on that activity? Well, let's go right into the guts of that thought, Frank, and I understand. I appreciate your, your concern. What happened, Dave Miner majored in that. And so he would send to the IRS letters on behalf of his clients saying, here's this error, 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 error in the identity portion. Dave Miner served, I think he just got out of prison for um, doing following that tack. The point is, is that although there are errors in there, you can't pinpoint a, shall we say, a sequential attempt to defraud in the uh, identity portion of your IMF. Mm -hmm. Those are always they just look at, and, and you can, you know, you'll have to take a look at this, but from the perspective of a, a lawyer that would want to sue in federal court, right. they would simply say mistakes have been made. But when you find the sequence of falsifying a set of steps to make it look like you asked, and they perform something when you neither asked nor performed, that's called fraud, flat-out fraud, and it's actionable because it's a sequence that they have to do for every non-filer. Okay, so let, that's, uh, let me see if I understand. It, it, now, with the top part where they make a mistake and they say, well, you've been involved in this taxable activity, and you go, no, no, I haven't, and they go, oh, oh, okay, oops, that's a mistake. Now, I understand that you you really don't have an action to go and sue them. Yeah, However, it, really, it really wasn't what they're using as the core of the fraud, Frank. Wouldn't that stop them, though? Well, I think what Michael is saying here, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but the sequence of events you're complaining about are established procedure. Right. Yes. And they are not simply the result of individual mistake by the IRS employees. I think if I'm understanding correctly, yes. you're saying you've read the documentation, and if you go from point A to point Z, this is their standard procedure. Correct. Not a mistake. That's right. It's not a mistake in that they can say, oh, yes, MFR01, we meant MFR02. Or you're really not a corporation. You're really, whatever errors that Dave used to really major in mm -hmm. turned out to be things that they could just simply say mistakes. Well, that's, I it, guess that's the part I'm not understanding because mistake or not mistake, whether it's intentional or a mistake. If, how can you prove it's a mis uh, intentional? Well, I, but I, don't, I, I, I guess I'm missing where that matters when okay. we're talking about the basis of taxation in a certain case that, look, you, you, you have to be involved in, in one of these things for us to tax you. We can't just tax you because we feel like it. You have to be involved in this. That's where we differ, Frank. I okay. do not agree with that. Okay. It's not basis of what you're labeled that is our problem. Okay. They can call you the man in the moon, and it doesn't make any difference. But when they take a sequence of fraudulent steps to make it look like something happened when it didn't, mm -hmm. that's what we call fraud on purpose, as opposed mm -hmm. to up in the top part, where it's just simply they'll say, oh, well, we misidentified that. But the, the thing that really, in a law, in a court setting, is the government can't have a a, a procedure or a sequence of things that they do to make it look like something happens when it doesn't. Right. Right? I get that. 
to prosecute you, they have to do a procedure. All their procedures have to line up with, with uh, due process of law, of course, and with their authorizations. So they can proclaim that they made a mistake in the top, but that's not going to stop them. And that's not where they get their power from. Oddly enough, Frank, it's not that they call you doing business and, you know, people have said for years that they say up at the top you're doing business in the Guam or Puerto Rico, that they mislabel you as being in the alcohol, tobacco, or fire. Well, they're, really, that's not the part where they get their power from. Where they get their power is when they make it look like in their coded record that you asked them to do a return for them. I for get that, my because what you're saying is it doesn't matter what you are. Uh-huh. Again, if you're the man in the moon or you're located in Guam or wherever, it doesn't matter because you said, would you please help me? And when you did that, you uh-huh. came into their jurisdiction in a way that they no longer had to justify. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. they're making so- it look like, and the funny part is, guys, they don't have any delegated authority. Congress has never given them the authority uh, and delegate to the commissioner or the secretary of the treasury who delegates it to the commissioner, his underling, and to his people. They, Congress has never given him the authority to do a substitute income, 1040 income tax return. They can't point to any source of authority. So the funky part was, guys, by looking and tracing out their actions and comparing them to what they do, the first thing they always send you in the mail when they're trying to track on you is something that's called an income tax examination change form 4549. And when you go look at that form, you say, hmm, what were they changing? And when I ask that of the IRS, they always just kind of go, mom, because there was nothing to change. The person they're calling a non-filer didn't file. And their records show that even though it shows that they did a substitute for return, the very first thing they send to you isn't a substitute for return. It's a change of something. <laughs> and there was nothing to change, you see. So, so the sequence of falsifying their internal records and falsifying their public-facing certifications is a sequence of fraud that they have to use because Congress has no power. Congressmen, by the way, are just... They have the same authority you and I have. We delegated to them. If we don't have the power, if I don't have the power to tax you, Frank, then Congress doesn't have the power to tax you. So basically what they've done is they've taken what we all pretty much have been told and realized is a voluntary compliance Uh situation. And if you refuse to uh, volunteer, they have gone around and (laughs) created fraud to make it look like you did. That's exactly right. Now, that, my friend, is actionable. That where you can say, this isn't just a mistaken identifier. This is a sequence of events that you guys have pulled off to give yourselves power that you didn't have. That damages me. Mm-hmm. When they build their little certification sequence, and then they build their levies on top of those falsified certifications, steal my, my uh, commissions, why? I don't care if they want to call me pink, purple, or blue. Call me what you want, but you can't do that sequence of fraudulent record falsification. That's what's actionable in a court of law, whereas opposed to just a simple misidentifier on the top, you wouldn't have standing because they don't use that misidentification as giving them power. It's the sequence of falsifying the events that gives them the power. Guys. Well, and their, their actions seem to uh, prove 
or at least evidence that it really truly is a voluntary yeah. system. Yeah, totally. They're exactly right. Just like they've always said, Frank. It's totally voluntary, but if you don't volunteer, they come after you with criminal charges. Where's the disconnect? And it's in their little, the computer done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, so nobody, my... no person that we know of, whoever started this, of course, knows exactly who, who did this. But the computer sequence, the guys in the, the little snurbs on the street that are like us, you know, just little people, they do what they're told. The computer tells them to do this, then you do this, and you do this, and then voila, at the other end, it comes out with, well, we can steal this guy's paycheck because we know where it comes from. He's got this deficiency. Looks like all the, everything was done correctly. Away we go. Now, now speaking of oh, who did what, I mean, you know, everybody is becoming more aware of, oh, gee, anything you do on a computer, somebody somewhere Yep. can know what exactly you did, when you did it, and all this other stuff. Is right. that part of your case? Are you identifying, okay, look, I want to know who exactly entered this, who exactly pushed the buttons, who yeah. exactly well, see, did now, all this? Well, uh, Frank, the, the guys that do this, that follow this procedure, are the snurbs, I'm calling them. They don't know what they're doing. They're just told, okay, something comes in, a little red flag happens here, you do this and you do this. They have no idea what they're doing. Well, yeah, you know, but if some of their colleagues the wall, start going I to jail. To them. <laughs> but if the person behind the scenes that, that understood the sequence, one or two or ten people in there know, or probably have long since retired, since 86 and 85 when they developed this automated substitute for return program, somebody in there knows it, and I'm telling you, that person is responsible. But before they started the computer fraud in 86, guys, they were doing it differently. And you probably have heard of this. They were doing what's called dummy returns. This is getting, this is really fun. You'll like this. They would take a piece, uh, a 1040 form, put your name at the top, and just leave it blank and put it in their file. That was a substitute for return. <laughs> when they got around to automating this, you guys might know this if you're computer people, but they would have a computer programmer, basically a guy that understands the sequence of how things are done, and he would walk around with iOS and they'd say, okay, what happens first? And the guy, the computer programmer, would take notes. What happens next? What happens next? What happens next? They go through the whole process and they document it, and then they create these transaction codes so that they can be automated, the process can be automated. When they got to the dummy returns, there was no way to explain that to a computer guy who's either just going to write a, a program that's one or zeros. It's either on or off. What's a dummy return that's not a return? They couldn't create a transaction code for a dummy return. So there is, in fact, no transaction code for a 1040 individual income tax substitute for return to be done. There's no transaction. They never created one. So they have to go about through this process of using the related audit information management system database. It's related to the IMF. And this is what we laid out for you guys. It's exceedingly detailed, step-by-step, step, how they use the Ames database to make these little transactions that goes over to the IMF, and IMF sends them back to Ames, Ames sends them back to IMF, to make it look like on a given date, with the you know, there's always those document locators. So those document locator numbers give it away if you know how to decode them with the 6209 manual. It shows you that you asked for the IRS to perform a substitute for return for you, and they did one so, when neither of them ever So you're, you're, you're saying that somewhere, you, okay, so you get into court, and at some point and some way, you say, okay, fine, produce 
the substitute yeah. <laughs> uh, return, they cannot do it. Mm-mm. Wow. Now, what they do instead, Frank, is they give you the, the I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Department of Justice knows that if they put into evidence through their expert witness uh, what's called the individual master file transcript, mm-hmm. that the defense counsel will just go through that and figure it out eventually, because it's fair game to ask a question about every single freaking number on the page. Mm-hmm. So it would show up if they did, if somebody at defense counsel were smart enough, and there are some, a few that might. So what they do instead is they give to the DOJ and to their expert witnesses these things called self-authenticating cert- uh, certifications. And the certification basically is a public-facing thing that says, me, this person, me, I've looked in the computer system of the IRS, and it shows that a substitute for return was done on so-and-so date, so-and-so, and so-and-so date. And that certification gets printed out, handed to the DOJ. DOJ guy gives it in the criminal prosecution to his expert witness, and the expert witness will say, this certification shows that it is um, <clears throat> that the records of the IRS reflect a substitute for return was done on blah, blah, blah date, and because of the rules of evidence, there is no need to get into the IMF. There is no need to go any further. The judge says, good, we have an assessment that shows a deficiency, and that's part of the elements of a willful failure to file. Now, now let me ask you this. Wait a second. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. If they have filed this certification that somebody says, oh, I looked in the pile of papers over here and I spotted one where Michael Dellis had asked us this. No, I looked in the IMF. Say it right. Okay? Get it straight. It's not in the pile of papers. I looked in the IMF. Now, again, picture you got to have like three or four people in your head doing okay. this. All right. All right. This is making it better for me. I'm, I'm understanding this more clearly because what I wanted to know is this. Does this certification include one of these transaction identification numbers? No. This is this is not an individual transaction. He's just saying, "Oh, I read the report and it's in there." Trust me. Basically, it's it's a computer-generated report that queries the IMF file and will put into a summary report the dates when the IMF was falsified to show what SFR was done. But frankly, you're not going to believe this, they routinely show three or four competing dates that you can misread on this certification form as the day when a substitute for return was done. They contradict each other, but they're a summary, a summary document. So the guy sitting here can say, well, it might have been done on this day, or maybe this date over here, or maybe that date over here, but uh, the IMF, or this certificate reflects, and of course the rules of evidence allow them to take this sworn document of somebody who created it, the certification, that's a sworn document that it says it looks like, I mean, the IMF record reflects that a substitute for return was done. They hand that to the DOJ, who hands it to their expert witness, and the expert witness is testifying hearsay on top of hearsay on top of hearsay of government records and that's how they get around the imf revealing now is there a way to once you get to that point you're standing there is there a way uh whether it's discovery or some other way that you can say no no i i actually want that that's right Frank, excellent question. By the way, where are you from? You sound like you're from the East Coast. Well, I, I grew up in New Jersey, but I live in Oregon. I've lived here for 30 years, well, 25 right. years. And I wonder I like you. I like your sharp mind. Here's the, the deal. 
in discovery of Dr. Bill Bailey, he's undergoing this willful failure to file thing, been a real interesting process. Glenn Ambort himself is an excellent researcher, having been put away for 10 years. Commander Ambort, formerly United States Navy, was put away for willful failure to file, never filed since 1975. They put him away for 10 years. He became a jailhouse lawyer. He saw my stuff that Al had posted three years ago, and he has taught the attorneys that the critical flaw in the game, guys, is not the legal arguments about whether you're required to file, about whether you're, you know, uh, the taxes imposed. It's a factual matter. He's made it, he's seen the issue. Mm-hmm. Is the factual matter of the IRS falsification makes all of their records suspect and have to be thrown out. So they're doing this battle of discovery, just as you mentioned, Frank. Mm-hmm. They're, dis- they're forcing the IRS to provide the source code for the individual master file <laughs> <laughs> software. You so mean the source code, the software source code? That's right. So that, that will prove to us that there is why exactly. See, in the source code, they oftentimes the programmers put little notes in there as to why they do things. Yeah. So what we're going to find out is what this is useful for. Why was this created? This particular sequence, this particular transaction. We can look at it, analyze it, take it apart, and realize, as we have, we those of us who are not really into computers as far as programming, we have realized because of the sequence, the way they do it, and because of the public-facing certificates that contradict the record underlying the IMF record, we know that the, that the fraudulent sequence has to be done for those who refuse to volunteer or fail to volunteer. And that's the story. It's a factual issue. We don't get into all of this other stuff about, Wolf, about whether or not you have a reliance defense, you relied upon this or that. That's a, a legal deal, and the lawyers have made sure that you can get screwed, excuse me, shall we say, get uh, <laughs> uh, abused. <laughs> yeah, any, any legal arguments in the court, the lawyers have made sure to defeat. But they can't defuse a Facts. fact issue because the fact issue is going to go to the jury, and the judges know that if that ever got to the jury, that the IRS is falsifying their internal records in every single willful failure to file case, that's going to throw that the whole a monkey wrench in the whole deal because it is truly, as Frank says, voluntary. What do you think the chances are that you'll actually get access to the source code for the Internal Revenue Computer System? Well, let me say this: he's doing a defense version, right? This is a criminal defense that Bill. You're, Bill you're Bailey, suing for it. He's doing it. He's use, He's asking for it as part of his defense. We're talking right. about Dr. Ve- Bailey. He wants the source code as part of his the, the defense. Are you asking for the source for code as co- part of your... No, I'm not looking for it. Here's the reason why. In a defense, you have to prove not only the relevance of this discovery that you're asking for, but constitutional um, violations that would occur if you don't get it. It's a very complicated dis- uh, uh, strategy. I get because, that. Uh, you know, you clearly it's a different deal when you're a criminal defendant. In the sense that I'm the prosecutor as the plaintiff, all I have to point out is record assigned to me, falsified, damaged me, stop it. Yeah. I understand so I that. I've told people the- for some time, you've got to be almost crazy to be a defendant in court. 
Well, anytime somebody right. sues you, you have to counterclaim. You have to find a way to go in as a plaintiff, and in order right. to, uh, and then you then you have a chance of winning. Defendants, right. you know, they never win. And what I mean by that is, even if yeah. Mister, even if Doctor Bailey is found not guilty, he's going to spend a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of sweat, equity, anxiety, trying to fight this thing. And then say, okay, get out of here. He has. Now you know, by the way, one of the champions of the anti-taxers, we could call those the guy. His name is Michael Mims. He wrote the Underground Lawyer, My sure. Battles Against Elias. Michael Lewis Mims. When uh, my friend got attacked, I called his office to talk about representing my friend. And the co-attorney, his co-attorney, Mims' co-attorney, suggested, well, we just had an opening. We just won a case. Now we've got an opening on our our uh, docket, so to speak, of the Mims law firm. Yep. And we're going to take applications. So it starts at $400,000. So if uh, my friend is going to have that kind of money, then you go ahead and and uh, we'll take his application, we'll check his deal. And by the way, Michael Mims has what's called a reliance defense. I don't know if you've heard of that, really. Yeah, I understand it in, very, in superficial terms. Well, it amounts to, I read the law, the law said such and such, I relied on the law, and it led me to a false conclusion. Or perhaps you're going to say the reliance defense is where I relied, my attorney advised me, and I relied on my attorney's advice. That's yeah, probably yeah, more yeah, accurate. Something reading. like that, whether it's your attorney or Supreme Court staff, whatever. But you yeah. have to prove that at the time you stopped filing, you relied on that advice. You can't say, oh, last year I read uh, somebody's book, Michael Mann's book, well, and, and I relied on that 20 years ago when I stopped filing. You can't do that. They won't let that happen. So um, the upshot is Michael Mins is, and I, the reason why I brought this up, Alan, because you're going to, in the defense zone, you're either going to pay the lawyers in the That's court exactly right. or pay the lawyers out of the court. You've got to be a plaintiff if you want to win. Defendants never win. They might not always be convicted, but they always lose time, money, something. All right. time. Defendants you see, always when you read lose. Michael Mims' book, by the way, I'm not trying to bash Mims, but his book about my battles with Elias, I'm looking, when I read this stuff, very carefully at what he's saying about the income tax, and he says the silliest things because he will quote a district court in Chicago, the 7th District, or 7th uh, Circuit, and he will tell you, obviously, everybody knows you have to file. See this case in the district of, you know, up there in Chicago? Well, let me ask you, do district court cases in any district, are they binding on the rest of the world? No. No, the only one that's binding on all of us is Supreme Court cases. I'd say there's another point to this also, and that is that the law is not the law in the way most people think of it. They think the law is written out like the Ten Commandments, and here they are, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and that's it. Okay, it's clear, it's understandable. The law varies from case to case. There are people who can argue the law in one case and get one decision, and there's other people that can argue the same law in another case and get a different decision. And the point I'm trying to make is the law, to me, is flexible, malleable, and unreliable. But the facts facts can be relied on. They are fixed. And what you're telling me, Michael, is that if you can grab hold of the facts of the case, don't worry about the law so much. Get your hands on the facts because they can't be denied or twisted. Either the fact is there or it's not. 
So that's why we go with a fact-based defense, or yeah. fact-based, in this case, offense, is there's nowhere to go. We have the record. We're looking at the record. As Frank said earlier, you simply ask the question, show me right here, this says uh, the fifth, fourth or fifth digits over here say this uh, 1040A was performed on this date. Give us that. Well, there ain't nothing to give. There's nothing there. There is no document. As you, When you do, by the way, you can go do a FOIA request for all those document locator numbers associated with the substitute for return transaction. Every one of them will come back with this response. This was a computer-generated entry. There are no documents to satisfy your request. I get you. And that's, if you know what you're doing, all by itself, that should be enough for you to win your case. Is that true? Correct. Correct. <laughs> they just basically answered you, I'm sorry, we're committing fraud. We don't have any evidence. Yeah. <laughs> we got no substitute for return. It was just computer done it. <laughs> so it's white-collar computer fraud, and it's, guys, it has taken a long time to figure it out because it's not what they did. It's what they didn't do covering, covered over by what they're doing. They right. presumed facts that are not in evidence, and I mean that would be that's a term they use in courts. I don't know that it would really apply to the IRS agents, but they're presuming that there were. Oh, they presume they presume Al that that this fact on this document is accurate because somebody in the deep bowels of IRS printed off a a shall we say just accepted version of the uh, IMF and she swore to it and said this is what it shows that a substitute for return was done on this. So that certification comes out and the IRS hands it to the DOJ who hands it to the IRS's expert witness who testifies this person's for this reflects a substitute for return on so and so date. And boom, that whole element is already there. It's already done. There is a deficiency. There was an assessment. Therefore, we go on to the other element, willfulness. Right? And so it's, it's a foregone conclusion because they're using facts in evidence that don't exist. I understand. I think you've got a brilliant defense here, Michael. I mean, I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but the idea of going after the facts rather than the law. Yeah. Most of the people that listen to this program, including myself, we're inclined to look at the law and try to make sense of it, even though if you look at it, it it's, it's, it's as malleable as a block of clay. You can shape it. A sharp attorney, a sharp defendant, a sharp, sharp prosecutor, plaintiff can make the law seem to mean a bunch of different things, and the juries can do the same. They can make it mean who knows what, and the judge can make it mean who knows what. But you're saying go after the facts, find the facts, Correct. and Correct. these things are set in concrete, and they either are or they are not. That is correct. So now let me take you to where – do we have time to tell you where the case is now? Yeah, we've got uh, about 25 minutes. Will that That's be fine. enough? Okay, so here's, here's what happened. Remember I told you before the break that I withdrew my first appeal to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, Circuit Court of Appeals, but – got the brief on appeal from the, the boys just before that. Well, then I knew that their strategy was that they can't head-on defeat by factual allegations, so they are going to obliquely point to other courts and hope that the circuit would agree with them. That didn't fly because I filed a new case, and I corrected the other two problems, and now the district judge uh, about six months ago 
took a look at this new case and came up with, well, it's just absolutely fascinating when you go look at it. She came up with things, shall we say, she called my allegations something close to what, what I said, but not exactly what I said. So here's, here's what I say, and it's very simple. The IRS falsifies their individual master file records to make it look like I asked for substitute return and that they performed one on given dates when neither event occurred. She misquotes my allegations and consistently did it about five different times, just a little off. She said, Mr. Ellis, the gravamen of his complaint is that Mr. Ellis was con complaining about the IRS performing substitutes for return. Do you hear the difference? <laughs> Ow. Did I lose you? You guys there? I'm here. Okay. I think Al, so, Al should be here. Yeah, I'm here. Oh. I had my I had my oh. microphone muted. I actually gave a response, but as usual, I was talking to myself <laughs> rather than to Michael and Frank in the audience. Um, I think the difference may be you're talking about what the what the uh, what the attorney did in writing the gravamen, all right, which means the approximation, I think, is what she's probably saying. That's her wiggle room. She said, Michael Ellis is complaining about the substitutes for return, and maybe what you're complaining about is that there is no substitute for return. <laughs> Correct. There is yeah. no substitute return, but they yeah. falsified their records to make it look like they did one that I asked for. Mm-hmm. So you can see that the judge is struggling here to give herself wiggle room to dismiss the case. She did that over and over and over. Five different times she did that. Yeah. And then she dismissed the case because she's arguing a different case from the one that I brought up, right? For example, another one of these days, she says that the, uh, Mr. Ellis has uh, made an allegation that IRS enters substitutes for return, false substitutes for return into the IMF. Well, that's wrong on multiple counts. First of all, you can't enter anything directly into an IMF because it's a batch-loaded transaction that all you can do is just do these transaction reports. Nobody can just go in and punch up SFR or do anything like that. It's not a standard database because it has to be highly secure. So my complaint is not that they're entering an SFR. It's that they're making their record show a substitute for return was done at my request when either event happened. So you guys are getting the idea, right? Oh, yeah. I I, I've got so. a question about the substitute. I mean, let's just say it was done, you know, legitimately. Let's say somebody actually contacted the IRS and said, hey, I'd like you to yeah. do this. Yeah. Do That's those fine. have to be signed? Well, yeah, typically, I mean, in fact, absolutely have to be signed. Okay, so, all right. You don't well, have to sign the ones that don't exist, though, right? <laughs> Hang on one second. The reason why they have to be signed is I discovered a memorandum, guys, in the, uh, uh, again, it was through a Freedom of Information Act or something. I don't remember exactly, but I discovered a memorandum in 1997 that says if you don't sign that 1040 at the bottom without any reservations written down there, if you, don't, if you sign it with reservations saying, you know, I'm being forced to do this or any of that stuff, those are reservations and they're not valid. Why? It says because it has to be voluntary to cr connect your liability, the taxpayer's liability, to our summary authority to assess the tax. If do you have a copy yep. of that memo that's available? Yes, I do. It's in 1997, it is flabbergastingly makes it clear <laughs> it's a voluntary deal. If you don't volunteer 
they don't have any authority to check it. But if you do send one in, Frank, and you sign it, they have all the authority in the world to, to check it to make sure that it's accurate. Sure. And if it's not, you're going down the river. Well, right. sure, but, you know, the, the, it's just another thing about, well, all right, uh, show me the uh, – oh, okay, so somebody at the IRS goes, oh, my gosh, somebody get a printer quick. You know, let's yeah. print out one of these things so we can give it to Discovery, you know. So, you know, they still can't – I mean – put a signature on there that's your legitimate no. signature. No, but if, if you don't sign it, see, in any case where you're asking them to do it, you are going to sign it, right? Because they're not going well, to ask it. them to do it and then say, I don't want to, I didn't ask you to do it. You always ask to do it, and the legitimate, as you pointed out, the legitimate sequence of asking IRS to do one is, is there. It's perfectly legitimate for you to ask the IRS to do one. And so there's a sequence of events that takes place. You will send in a signed 1040, 1040A, whatever it is, and it's, the IRS will then just do the analysis just pursuant to your request, which is perfectly fine. But, but if you, if you didn't ask for that, they won't have one. And even right. if they go to print one out, it, it, can't, it won't be signed. That's there's why, another that's point why here. they don't ever. That's why there's they there's never. another point here that crosses my mind. Go ahead. What they're essentially saying is they're, they're, they're going along with the idea that the income tax is voluntary because when they, when they rely on a false document that you never signed, that you didn't authorize them to do a, a, an assessment, That's right. when they rely on that, they're saying you authorized them. That's mm -hmm. why when we see that maybe why – when we see people complain, they say, where's the law? Show me the law that I have to pay the income tax. There isn't any law. The thing, right. the thing presumes that you voluntarily said, well, why don't you tax me? I don't have anything better to do. Here's a form. I've, I've signed it. And, in fact, well, if you haven't that's, signed that's it, they're out, relying. Going down they're there. still relying on you to authorize them to come after you, which is crazy. Who's going to authorize the IRS? <laughs> But you mind signing this form so we can so we can sue you? Uh -huh. No, I so don't think I will. Some of us have stood back, knowing God, knowing that truth is strong, knowing that our nation is founded on the rule of law, knowing that I'm a sovereign, supposedly, you know, co-equal sovereigns with you guys, and that we can't compel each other to specific performance unless we damage somebody or break a contract. You go about on that basis with those kind of elements, and you start to say, well, then if I can't be compelled to testify against myself, then I'm not required to file one of these forms and swear it out like they require me to do without any mental reservation. And if I don't do that, then am I, could I be required to pay? And what they have to do to make that whole sequence work is white-collar crime behind the scenes make their computers read that you asked. And that they perform. You're not just asked. You authorized. That's, That's the point. You, as arguably as sovereign, authorized yep. your servants to come after That's, you. That's correct. And now you see the whole story in black and white. It's sitting out here. And it's not hard to figure, but what was hard to figure was the IMF business. Dave Miner was really working on that in the top identity portion, Frank. And the identity portion, when you – here's the – I, I, I'm not trying to point to myself, but I just happen to have done a lot of reading and what's actionable, right? So I could always just tell the IRS, fix these problems in the identity portion. I'm not an MFRO1, or I don't have a mail filing requirement, 
fix those, and the IRS would say, fine. But they fix them all because they don't give them any power. It's the transaction section where they falsify the record that gives them a power that they didn't ordinarily have. The power to compel comes through the transaction fibs, not the identifiers up above it. You see what I'm saying? So most of our friends concentrated up on the top part, the identity portion, and missed the, the action down below in the transaction section. And that's where I just had to go through those line by line by transaction and compare it to what they sent me in the mail and compare all of that to what their internal revenue manual say and what their revenue officer manual say. So that whole process was scary to say the least, but um, God is good. And we figured it out. And now, so when do you expect to get a response well, here, on the suit go, that you filed? We, the district judge dismissed the case with those five things and a bunch of other little errors, similar errors, right? And so I appealed again. She did that about, oh, I think January or February, something like that. So we appealed to the United States District Court. I'm sorry, the United States Court of Appeals for the circuit, the D.C. circuit. Now, the case got out there. And I'm just going to make kind of a fast-forward deal. We're in the middle of a very interesting sequence. Again, the person, the same attorney, is representing the defendant DOJ and the defendant Internal Revenue Service Commissioner. What do you mean? You mean the same attorney is representing two defendants? Yes, and this same attorney was the one that filed that brief that I got to see at the last minute in the first time around. Right? So she gave her strategy away there. Now we're back in take two of the appeal to the circuit court. And now I filed a, a motion that said, it was actually a motion to file this amended brief. And I said to expedite, I requested the court to expedite her answer, their reply brief. The lady, this DOJ attorney, files back a, a deal and says, <clears throat> and just summarizes what I supposedly said. And then at the end of it, she swears under penalty of perjury that it's true. What she did was literally just quote, Mr. Alice is complaining. She, she, she is quoting the district court judge now. Mr. Alice, the gravamen of his case is that he's complaining about the IRS's uh, completion of substitutes for return. And on and on and on. All five of the fabrications that the district judge made she quoted them, but added her own, swearing under penalty of perjury, this is Mr. Ellis's allegations. Do you know what that means? She swore, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, she swore under penalty of perjury that it was true, that I said something that I never said. So I have just filed a couple of things. A motion for sanctions. After I gave her 30 days to, to review it and fix it, I filed a motion for sanctions that's sitting there because I gave her plenty of warning, plenty of time to fix it and withdraw it. I never made these allegations. Maybe the court made them up, but you swore under penalty of perjury that they're true. Take it back. And well, you know, that also raises a question about whether she should be disbarred. Oh, absolutely, now because... There's evidence I, of moral turpitude. That's and, exactly correct. So in yep. the relief I requested in that, that sanctions motion, I said, make her compel her to show where I made those allegations. And if there isn't any such allegations, and there aren't, make her withdraw her objection, her entire thing, strike it, 
and sanction her by either removing her from the case and possibly disbarment. Because Moral turpitude, it used to be, I don't know what it is now, I knew a little about this back in the 1990s, I'm not mm -hmm. sure what the law requires at the moment, but back then, if an attorney was found to be guilty of moral turpitude, one time it was a misdemeanor, and a second time was a misdemeanor, and a third time it would be a felony, and they'd be disbarred permanently. Oh, Al, and the point better. is, you only get it's three better, at the time. You could only be convicted of moral turpitude three times in your entire career. Not three times in a case. Three times in your entire career. <laughs> and you're back now, to working now, for a living. So that. it was the are you aware of what misprison is, 18 U.S.C. 4? Misprison, a felony, has four elements to it. One, an underlying crime has to be committed. Two, you know about it. Three, you didn't bring it to anybody's attention that should have done something about it. And four, you committed a positive act of concealment to prevent it from being stopped. So in this case, here's how the elements played out. Underlying, there was an underlying felony committed. That's the IRS record falsification scheme called the Automated Substitute for Return Program. Number two, she knew about it. She's known about it for years, since 2012. Number three, she didn't bring it to anybody's attention to stop this fraud. And number four, she just flat out lied to conceal the underlying felonies. She has just, as I made mention to the court, committed a parent misprisoned a, fraud, a felony, and she needs to be disbarred on that basis alone. I guarantee you, if you can, I, I mean, I can't guarantee it, but I would say that if that line of attack is yeah. refined to where it becomes <laughs> not just, it doesn't even have to be reliable, just plausible. There's a whole bunch of people say, I don't want to sue Michael Ellis. Okay, well, there's a I'm bunch of other people I'd like to sue, but not Michael, because he'll try to take my license. Well, I you don't know, want to hurt anyone. When you know we were I mean? studying I'm not, that, yeah. I'm trying to think of his name, and you know him, and he passed on a few years ago, and I can't think of his name. I should be able to. He got in. He's the one that got into this. He said three separate instances of moral turpitude, and you're disbarred. That's not three separate cases. Mm -hmm. Three right. separate lies, uh, three separate instances of moral turpitude in even a single case mm -hmm. at the time was sufficient to have an attorney disbarred. Well, I now, that's got to be saying. scary because oh, she's told those lies, in. what, five times, if I understand you correctly. I know, five, but you cannot commit. Well, she just swore that they were all true with the judge fabricated. But you And this, really what the bottom line is, guys, I'm not going for her jugular... I really want just one thing to happen, that the Court of Appeals actually deal with the fraud that I raised. <laughs> I just want the issue to be right here in front of everyone. IRS falsifies its records to make it look like I asked, and they performed a substitute for return when no such events ever happened. I was damaged. Tell them to stop. Permanently. Well, in your suit... Are you asking them to stop permanently in relationship <laughs> only to you? No, or are you asking them question. to stop permanently in relationship to everyone? See, I just asked this. Here, for example, I just filed a TRO, temporary restraining order, because the court is going on recess for a while. And I say, during the interim, since the IRS always falsifies their records in that manner, in the manner I've discovered and set forth with technicolor clarity, and since the IRS has damaged me in the past, 
And since this lady has now committed apparent felony misprison to conceal and defend the underlying fraud, the IRS and DOJ at any moment could, could, could do to me what they've done to, to literally tens of thousands of people and attack me. So in this temporary restraining order during the time of the recess, I'm asking the court to temporarily order the IRS to cease the automated substitute for return record fraud program. B, order the DOJ to temporarily during the course of this appeal stop the use of any certificate, self-authenticating certificate, in any willful failure to file or any uh, other criminal case. C, asking the court to figure out whether I actually said what she said I said, and that since I didn't say that, address and decide the actual issues. Order the DOJ to address and to, you know to address the actual issues raised by this appeal, not fabricated, substituted issues that make you know that aren't germane. Now, if we that's in this TRO out, but in the uh, actual relief requested in the complaint, it was just simply as I just kind of intimated, it's just simply to stop the ASFR record falsification and stop the IRS from producing these falsified certificates that they hand to the IRS for criminal prosecution. I Let me have ask you this. Mm -hmm. Supposing, I'm not can you send an, send an affidavit, for example, mm -hmm. to the Internal Revenue Service, or perhaps just your lawsuit, right. does that become, once you send that to them, not to their attorney per se, but can you send it to the Internal Revenue Service and one way or another cause it to receive a transaction number and be permanently added into your IMF. Is that possible? Well, what I, I would have to say at this moment, no. And here's mm -hmm. the reason why. In the IMF, all I, and this is an interesting question, I can't absolutely say no, but in the IMF itself, it's only got three sections in it, the identity portion, that identifies you and mail filing requirements and all that. Transactions, what they do, their transactions about you. Three, all of the documents that they've sent to you are also noticed. But they do not, as far as I can tell, have any section that requires them to notice documents that you file. Well, that would so, be a big a big step forward if that were possible, because if it were possible to send these arguments into the file, insert them into the file, and the arguments and the evidence, um, it would be a situation as you would think well, you it have, put them back on their either. heels, and they might not be back again for another 50 or 100 years before they contacted well, I, you again. You're right. There is a way to do that, and it's through the uh, Title V to correct your record. There's an, act, an okay. actual procedure to do that where you can tell them, demand them, here's the errors, fix them. So I could go around and do it that way, probably, but my goal has all along been to stop the scam, not, not just for me, but to end it permanently. All right. So when are we going to hear from – when are you going to hear from the IRS next? How long before – well, they're required to answer. Their next, uh, their brief is supposed to be coming in in uh, July, about the seventh or tenth. Right. But so you got a month. They have a month, but I got to tell you this: that TRO and my motion for sanctions 
and another document I filed are sitting before a special panel right now that could rule on them at any moment. So if you hear a great big bunch of screaming coming up from the south of Corsicana in happiness, you'll know. Well, we'll be listening. Where are we, Frank, for time? Oh, we got about we got about five minutes. All right. All right. Well, again, let's remind folks, I'm going to remind folks that I'm going to endeavor to get uh, links to fundamental documents Michael's talked about, the 6209 manual, the Maureen Green letter, which is apparently already posted on my blog, a link to Michael's current lawsuit, uh, a link to, if there is any, to Dave Miner to see whatever he's up to, and the, uh, that 1997 memo. Yes. That you had discovered that indicates that the system is voluntary. Uh-huh. All right. Oh, yeah. I'd like to put those up on the blog, and we'll, we should have them up there, you know, within the next 24 hours. I don't know how long it's going to take to get all of these things assembled, but we should be up there in the next 24 hours. And yeah. I would bet that everyone listening is going to want to, you know, consider those links and see what uh, see what comes of it. And it's not really all that complicated, and it might sound like it, guys, but mm. anybody with normal brain that can smell fraud, and most of us can, you follow this track, and you begin to study it, and you'll see, oh, my gosh, that's how they've done it, to yeah. tens of thousands of lives. It's not just tens of thousands. It's probably you're saying this is the way they go after people for willful failure to file. Correct. And these are the tens of thousands you're talking about, tens of thousands who've been charged with willful failure to file. Do you yeah. think it's only tens of thousands, or is the number higher than that? They don't really file that many. Well, they don't file that many right. criminal cases each year. No, um, but they do come after those people. Yeah, I understand. And they, they force many people to, like me, to just knuckle under. They steal your stuff. You know, they, they cause you, they destroy your business, cause you have yeah. to get back into the act of filing like my friend had to do mm-hmm. just to keep them off their back. So whether it was a criminal case they instituted or just a criminal theft based on falsified government records, I want to point this out to you guys just in passing. You have this is a, a case called Devereaux versus Abbey. This case said specifically you have a right to not be prosecuted on the basis of government falsified evidence. In other words, you cannot, your right exists to not be prosecuted by government framing you. How do you spell Devereux? D-E-V-E-R-E-A-U-X versus A-B-B-E-Y, Abby. That's okay. a Ninth Circuit case. My friend Glenn Ambort showed that to me about uh, three weeks ago, and that's powerful. So you can see if you have such a right and it's been articulated by a circuit court of the United States, the Ninth Circuit, by the way. No one's going to disagree with that. You cannot be prosecuted on the basis of falsified government records. That's where we, again, that's really strongly actionable when, they, when you have evidence that they've done it. All right, I'll try to find it. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll turn up, and I'm sure that there are people, I'll bet there are people listening to the program right now have it uh, within mm-hmm. know, half hour after the program ends. Speaking of which, I think we are about out of time, finally. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you very much for being on the program. This has certainly been interesting. It's been educational, informative. Uh, This is important information, and it's evidence of what one man or a couple of men can do. 
right. who are prepared right. to just set their heels and work and work and push and push, and all of a sudden things start to happen. But we might we see an end to the IRS before we're done with this. We may live long enough to see the IRS <laughs> eliminated. Michael, thanks very much. Frank, thank you for co-hosting. I'm Alfred Addis. I want to thank all of you for listening. We'll be back next Tuesday. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Michael, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye. of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. 
Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We are going to empower you because that's what we do here on Herb Talk Live. So glad you've joined us here on American Voice Radio. We have a great show. We're going to be talking about some, um, well, this is ancient manuscript that folks in the U.K. discovered going back 2,000 years. What did the folks back there know that we don't know about health? Mm, They are pouring over that thing, and uh, they hope to discover some secrets. Well, we're going to talk about it. And also, we have um, constipation on our list as well as maybe a cancer topic or two. So we got things uh, to, to talk with you about, all empowering things, as, as we often say here on the show. Uh, we do have a quack report, but before we get to all that great stuff, a big salute and semper fi to our righteous men and women in uniform. We lift them up in prayer all the time. And all of America, I pray for righteous leadership to be restored in America. You know, I seek the Lord's face every day. I, I ask for truth and justice and, and um, plead for righteous men of valor to be restored in this land, you know, with wisdom and knowledge and, you know, honorable things, moral things, truthful righteousness, right? That's what I pray for because, you know, without that, what do we have? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So uh, I think we need to return to the basics. I think we need to return to uh, God's laws, and hopefully if we all just seek the Lord's face and mind the time, God's will will be done. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. What do we have in the quacker health insurance? A big premium hike, apparently, under the Obamacare plans for next year, 2016. Uh, apparently, dozens of health insurance uh, providers are going to be selling plans under Obamacare uh, under a hefty premium increase, mm, according to the White House. Yeah. Um, the insurers have cited higher-than-expected care costs from customers they gained under the Affordable Care Act coverage expansion and the rising cost of prescription drugs and other expenses for the reason for their increase, which, by the way, is a double-digit 
percentage increase. So among the market leaders, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina is seeking about 26% premium increase. Um, their plans in Illinois and Florida, uh, those states, they're going to be asking for 20% more. Uh, Pennsylvania Highmark Health Insurance Company is asking 30% more. So consumers should start learning how these rates may change for their specific plan by early October, okay, uh, because uh, that'll give you a couple of weeks to shop before you have to find out what you're doing by the 15th of November when people usually sign up for their coverage. So, um, yeah, Obamacare costing us more, not less. Mm-mm, as we all predicted and knew, right? What else we got in the crack report? Uh, biotoxins. Let's see. This is BT toxin engineered GM corn new study. Um, let's see. This transgenetic corn is losing its ability, according to some research, to ward off pests. Researchers from North Carolina State University and Clemson University found that the crop pest corn Earworm no longer responds to the BT toxin in the GM corn, rendering the GM corn with the pesticides built in useless. So the corn earworm, long been a, a pest, attacks not only corn but other crops like tomatoes and cotton, beans, alfalfa, and tobacco. And once that pest gets hold of a crop, it pretty much eats it, uh, kernel and all, unsaleable. You know, it's gone. So uh, their work is being published in the Journal of Environmental Entomology. Uh, researchers from uh, these two schools uh, checked multiple crop sites in both North and South Carolina over the course of two years, and the last time they found that the BT toxin in GM corn was uh, of any benefit was in, in 1990 when it was first released to the market. Looks like the little earworm is, you know, like immune. What do you think? So BT corn no longer effective as a GMO targeting corn for earworms. Test. I guess they're resistant. Evolved. Hmm. Uh, what else we got in the crack report? Oh, um, this is kind of interesting. Uh, there's a new gadget, um, and it has an app. Of course it does. It's a mood changer. It's wearable. It zaps your brain. And it's controlled by your phone, an app on your phone. Apparently, people in the U.K. especially, the, the queen says that no more, um, no more substance abuse and nothing that can, you know, uh, change. Uh, any human consumption that produces a psychoactive uh, effect is banned. Okay, so now they've come out with something electrical instead. Okay, so they're changing, I guess. Something they smoke for something they zap their heads with here with their phones. It's just been released. It's a headset, and they say it either you can set it to either wake you up or calm you down. It manipulates your brain mood with electricity. So the cost of the headset is like two ninety nine, um, and it, it provides calm or energy on demand uh, using some neuro signaling. Um, uh, activation. It activates the nerves, changes your mood, state of mind. It's called the Cynic, and it looks like a, a small white plastic triangle, and you just place it on your forehead. And uh, it just uh, uh, wirelessly uh, gives you some vibes, uh, formulates some zaps, if you will, to wake you up or calm you down. 
The whole thing is controlled by your phone. Uh, your zapping will last about an hour, but the effects are, you know, longer than that. Uh, so the Thynic works by manipulating electrical energy rather than material substance abuse that the queen has disallowed. So, uh, yeah, there's a will, there's a way, right? <laughs> Last but not least in the quack report, um, whooping cough is in the news again. Uh, a whooping cough on the rise in the United States, they say, it's well, It's people are arguing. Some people say it's really not due to fewer people being vaccinated. It's due to the decreased effectiveness of the vaccine. Uh, according to a study that was conducted by re- researchers from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, their results are published in the Journal of Polo's uh, Computationary Biology. It was appeared in April. So they say whooping cough, also known as pertussis, uh, it's, of course, named after that distinctive gasping whooping noise when patients have inhaled ha- air to uh, have this coughing fit. So health experts have raised concerns that whooping cough cases are on the rise between 1965 to 2002 we had about an average of 10,000 cases per year in the US in recent years that number has gone between 29,000 per year as high as 48,000 uh, in 2012 and they think it has something to do with them uh, reformulating the vaccine in 1990 91 something like that they changed it because the old one uh, had severe reactions people didn't like. Um, So there you go. But, you know, I say have no fear because God's herbs are here. (laughs) Uh, I didn't mean to rhyme. I I didn't. But thyme, thyme herb um, has some elements in there, uh, uh, some antibacterial elements for the whooping cough uh, pathogen. So um, it just kind of just cleanses that away and helps you breathe easier and calms the coughing down. So you can check out Thyme, T-H-Y-M-E, and uh, see what you can do with that. Of course, I love this stuff. If you're looking for the Thyme tea and tincture, check out thepowerherbs.com and cough no more. And that wraps the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Alrighty, we're going to be talking about uh, this ancient manuscript, and um, I like its title. It's called Simple Drugs. I should love the ancients. They just get right down to it, <laughs> you know. Uh, they had no time to waste, right? All right, the University of Manchester in England has made a unique find, and what they thought was a 1,000-year-old book, right? A 1,000-year-old book, that's pretty significant. That's pretty cool. But what they had was something older. It appeared that this Syrian hymnal, this thousand-year-old Syrian hymnal, was not exactly what it appeared to be. As the team pieced together this ancient book using modern technology, they discovered the book's pages had been reused, and there was an even older text beneath the animal hide pages. Hmm. So imagine their surprise to find that the original author of this book is none other than the Roman physician and philosopher Galen. So underneath the top pages was this ancient medical text with instructions 
on mixing herbs for making medicines, you know, compounding your drugs. So let's see, let's see what the ancients had to teach us, okay? First, a little history on Galen. His, his name, when you translate it from the Greek, means calm. I guess he doesn't need one of those little uh, thyric devices to zap his brain. He was already calm. So he was a wealthy physician, and he died around the year 2008. I'm sorry, he died around the year 200 A.D., and Galen was a kind of a forward-thinking physician of his day, and he believed in the relationship of diet and exercise and hygiene and positive thought to preserve good health. And he was a, a physician of uh, he was a physician for a time for the Roman gladiators, where he gained a lot of knowledge in the areas of trauma and surgery treatments. And it said that while he was you know at his post as the gladiators' physician, that he only lost five men. So Galen studied Hippocrates, and he excelled at human anatomy, and he often was in trouble with Roman law, which prohibited dissecting of human remains, uh, at which point, you know, he was forced to study animal anatomy. So he wasn't able to take cadavers and do his research. He he would get into big trouble when he did that. So uh, he learned the art, get this, of resuscitating by inflating the lungs of a primate. So he could do CPR. He could uh, He could do all kinds of things respiratory-wise, and he was very interested in the circulatory system, and it was noted, he was noted for recognizing the difference in venous dark blood and arterial bright blood. You know, nobody seemed to notice that before. And he went on to study the nervous and respiratory systems, and his work, his work did include trial and error, and some of his theories were incorrect. But he was the first physician to note the muscular system had muscles that were agonistic and antagonistic, you know, sort of a muscle chain, which influences the strengthening and lengthening or bulking of the muscle. So interestingly, Galen was the originator of cataract surgery. I didn't know that. I was like floored. So similar cataract surgeries are still being performed today. So he kind of like, you know, laid the groundwork for that. All right, so let's look at the how they digitized uh, this this uh, drug book. How did they find everything? Well, the researchers used digitized technology to uncover the writings of Galen, and Galen lived between 129 A.D. to 200 A.D. So on the ancient animal skin pages, there was a copy title beneath called On the Mixtures and Powers of Simple Drugs. Of course, the researchers are just calling this title Simple Drugs for short. So experts are hoping that the writing, when it's translated, will offer new insights for medicinal uh, science, medical science, and uh, from, well, the ancient kingdoms of Greece, Rome, and the Middle East. So the ongoing research on this book has been called a palimpsest, and it's an ancient form of recycling books, which, you know, in the ancient world was kind of common to write over old manuscripts. So in this case, Gallen's medical text was covered by a Syrian scribe around a thousand, when he wrote on it, about a thousand AD. 
So what the Syrians did is to gently scrape away Galen's handwriting, well, their form of whiteout, and then they wrote Syrian hems on the parchment instead. So the university used digital photography with different lights and a computer algorithm to help lift Gallen's words off the parchment to bring his work back to life. And what Gallen wrote about in his book, Simple Drugs, was a summation of the ancient medicines. So it included compounding plant-based medicines, it included patient care, and various procedures. So his writings listed and described plants and roots in detail, such as, you know, listing which plants you would use to cure a sore throat or flatulence or infertility in men. So his work in Simple Drugs was translated into Syriac, which is an ancient form of Aramaic used in the Middle East. And the researchers think that the text was translated by a Syriac physician and priest. And this one text, they discovered, is only one of a, a set of 11 books by Gallen. Wow. So they think that it was a Gallen's writing that, in effect, created um, a bridge for the medical knowledge to move from the ancient Rome and Greece areas to the Islamic world. So the restoration of his book, Simple Drugs, will take several years, and they think it will cost about $1.5 million, and that money has been granted to them by the UK's Art and Humanities Research Council, and the team has already tracked down five missing pages from this book in various countries located in museums and in private collections. Wow. Talk about, you know, super sleuth. So how accurate uh, will these translations be? Well, the university team speculates that once the text is restored, that the writings of Galen may have gone through multiple translations in which changes occur. So ancient scribes tend to remove parts, uh, you know, thought to be unimportant or add information based on new knowledge. So they, they hope to compare the original Galen Palimist recycled book uh, of Simple Drugs to the British Syriac copy, and the differences will offer insights and reveal how ancient treated patients and, you know, track how Galen's knowledge traveled across Europe to the Middle East. So, you know, this is this is really kind of almost like the foundations of medicine almost, really. Some researchers find Galen's work to be hmm, unscientific, even barbaric. But, of course, it's easy to say that now with regard to modern technology at medicine's fingertips. But Gallen's work today may seem crude, but it was the height of medical science during its infancy 2,000 years ago. However, scientific medicine had to start somewhere, and it usually starts with, you know, a philosophy and a hypothesis, and then trial and error, error follow, and, you know, this is how we learn. This is how we gain knowledge. And it could be said 1,000 years from now that, Medical procedures of the 21st century were unsophisticated, insane, and deadly. Now, one thing's for certain, scientific standards come with risk. Let me read you a quote from one of the researchers at University of Manchester, Dr. Poorman. He says it's likely to be a central text uh, once it's fully deciphered and restored, 
And he says, we might discover things we really can't dream of yet. Hmm. So it's almost like, you know, we're coming like full circle. It's interesting that modern medicine would be interested in what secrets await in Gallon's text, similar similar to an archaeologist searching for secrets to an ancient civilization. Obviously, the ancient world has secrets, and ancient really doesn't mean obsolete. Experts are still debating over how the pyramids were built and how Egyptians made colored glass and simulated gems thousands of years before the concept was developed. So if the ancient world could have unsafe medicine and treatments, so can our modern world. So just because we consider ourselves current, modern, and educated doesn't mean we know more than the ancients. So we can learn from them. We can learn from their discovery and from their mistakes. And I think I think a lot of what Galen wrote about is timeless anyway. One thing I've learned working with herbs is that they are really timeless. Uh, they worked 2,000 years ago, and they work today. So I think Galen contributed greatly to modern medicine with regard to an anatomy and trauma, and I think he made significant contributions to the knowledge of compounding plants into medicine. And certainly there have been improvements in both areas since his writing, but Galen and others helped launch these discoveries. So kind of like a mother bird kicking her chick out of the nest to learn to fly, Galen likewise helped to jumpstart scientific medicine. So I think his book title, Simple Drugs, I like it. Uh, Using herbs to help the body regenerate, heal itself, can often be very simple, easy, and it produces lasting results. So here in our modern age, we've kind of come full circle, you know, starting with plants and roots, evolving to pharmaceutical drugs made from synthetics and then vaccines, and now we return to using plants and roots. So with that said, the ancients have a lot to teach us. And if you would like to learn more about how you can rebalance your system, boost immune system, remove pharmaceutical residues, well, then call Apothecary Herbs. So if you're tired of having your disease managed and you're tired of being a patient for life, well, call the experts. Call Apothecary Herbs. Learn how to reverse all that. 866-229-3663. Give them a call. 866-229-3663. If you're outside the U.S., dial 704 704- Eight eight five zero two seven 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 zero four eight eight five zero two seven seven, or you can visit them on the web, thepowerherbs.com, thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless, and you can get there. You can get there uh, typing in uh, herbtalklive.com, of course, and they do have their um, Father's Day special going on now through the fifteenth. So. Um, you don't have to be a father to to take advantage of the sale, but it's uh, the discount code's on their website. It's Dad15, and uh, and orders uh, minimum orders fifty bucks, but you'll save twenty percent. So if you've been thinking about cleansing or immune boosting or uh, you know just uh, toning everything up, then uh, you know try it out with the discount and uh, see how powerful you can be. So uh, the code's on the website Dad15. You can use that over the phone or in a mail-in order. And that is good now through the 15th, so you can take advantage of that. Um, also, if you're on their website, don't forget to sign up for their online newsletters 
free. Go out each and every week. Lots of empowering information there. Knowledge is power, as you know. And, of course, uh, the American Survival goes out on Tuesday. That's one of the newsletters, and you'll get uh, health information, financial information, and things of that nature that, you know, empower you. And then if you're just interested in natural healing, therapies, and things, then uh, the HealthQuest newsletter goes out on Friday. And so those are both free. You can sign up online. It is an email-delivered newsletter. I'm sorry it's not a hard copy. Got to make that clear. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, you got to have email. Yes, you do. Or know somebody that does. <laughs> and they'll print it off and send it to you, I guess. All right, we got some time. Ooh, yeah, we got a few minutes just before we have to go to commercial break. Um, we're going to be talking about some um, constipating issues here. Uh, seems to be a problem. The older we get, you know, it's, it's understandable. That's what we hear from our doctors. You know, you're getting older. So, you know, these things happen. Uh, but that's hogwash. It's the same thing with, you know, expecting to um, have prostate problems or um, eyesight vision issues, you know, um, macular degeneration, cataracts and things. You know, it's, it's, it's not true. We're not supposed to have these as we get older. So there's always a way to deal with these. And I, tr- I truly believe the natural way is the gentler way. The body accepts it better. Um, and it has lasting results. So we're going to talk about things that tend to constipate you, and specifically medications. There are some medications that can just plug up your muffler in a skinny minute, and then all of a sudden you're at the doctor's office and you're either taking over-the-counter stuff to counteract that or they're giving you another drug. Goodness. So, well, there's a new class of constipation drugs, though, on the market, uh, supposedly to help relieve the symptoms of constipation. And according to some reports, 28% of Americans suffer from chronic constipation, and they spend over $2.5 million at the doctor's office each year. That's a lot of money. So what could uh, be the cause of constipation? You know, the elimination channel is not working. Why not? And what are the risks of just treating such a symptom with a, a, a drug instead of, tr- you know, getting at the cause of the problem? So we're going to take a look at this. Oh, yeah. Plumbing problems are significant, whether they're in your home or in your body. You know, got to take care of it. Can't can't put that off. Absolutely not. Elimination channels, very important. Very important. I've always said the bowel is the most important organ of the body. I know. That's kind of disappointing to some people, but that's what it is. So, did I hear music from my engineer? I guess I did. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. Is your PSA?
PSA count high? Half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the Prostate Kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate gland. Call Apothecary Herbs for the Prostate Kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the Prostate Kit and empower yourself. Toll free 866-229-3663 or international callers 704-875-8010. That's toll free 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Henry Ford, the automobile. And herbalist Wendy Wilson? Well, discover for yourself. Listen to Herb Talk Live. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com.
here on Herb Talk Live. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson, and we're talking about things that can constipate us. You know, more people are experiencing a lot of digestive disorders. The elimination process is affected. People complain of infrequent, you know, bowel movements or difficulty moving uh, or even diarrhea, so one end of the spectrum to the other. That is really when, if you have both going on, you flip-flop back and forth from diarrhea to constipation, it's really um, a problem, Um, and it can be extreme. You can, and it's called irritable bowel syndrome, according to modern medicine. So what, what is constipation? Well, the medical experts define constipation as having fewer than three bowel movements per week. And this is a revealing statement. So it indicates that if someone has a bowel movement every three days or three times per day, they are clinically defined as not constipated, when in fact, They are. So if you're having three bowel movements per week, not per day, but three bowel movements per week or every three days, medicine says you're not constipated, but you really are. Patients suffer from a lot of bloating and pain and urgency and feelings of incomplete evacuation. And these symptoms often occur in clusters and vary in type and severity over time. So medicine has really not been able to tie the condition to any biological markers uh, through their testing. So the condition cannot be explained by a structural or biochemical disorder. So medicine simply attempts to lessen your symptoms. And psychological symptoms may be an underlying condition for physical mechanisms not working. Some prescription drugs and over-the-counter meds can actually slow the bowel transit time too and your, these would be like things like your pain medications or antidepressants or any spasmodic drugs. Um, they tend to put your bowel muscle to sleep, basically. So let's talk about normal bowel function. What is normal? Uh, people have different ideas what normal is. Evacuation of the stool is the main job of the bowel. And if a person is eating, then the bowel must evacuate. And when this doesn't happen on a daily basis and more than once a day, uh, then the bowel gets backed up. It's not functioning normally. Normal bowel function is having a bowel movement for each meal that you eat. So if you eat three times a day, optimum-wise, we're supposed to have a bowel movement three times a day, not three times a week. And I've learned it's usually diet-related. If it's not the medicines you're on, It's what you're eating that's causing the bowel to be sluggish and not move adequately. Let's look at some of the statistics. The low estimate is, well, that 19% of Americans have bowel malfunction, and it can be as high as 28%. So more women than men seem to be plagued by this problem. So constipation seems to get worse as you get older, according to medicine. People over 65 tend to have constipation, and just treating the symptoms is not going to make things go away. It gets worse. Now, notice over 65. What do people over 55 have? Well, most people over 55 on average are taking not one drug, not two drugs, but five. So depending on what they're taking and depending on what they're eating can be the real cause of constipation. Let's look at some of the risks. There are significant risks for not getting the bowel to rebalance and work 
the way it should. Chronic constipation will reduce the quality of life by producing bowel impaction, incontinence, perforated bowel, appendicitis, or a leaky gut. These are all the risks you take. So the longer the stool is allowed to remain in the body, there's an opportunity for toxins in the stool to be reabsorbed or to, you know, leak out of the colon through the colon tissue and affect surrounding tissues such as prostate, uterus, kidneys, back muscles, and the sciatic nerve. So cancer is also a concern where you get this putrid toxin that is concentrated in the body for extended periods of time. So patients seeking medical help from doctors spend about 3000 per year. And there are conditions which, um, which can cause malfunction of the bowel, uh, well, can also cause you neurological conditions. Um, you know, a lot of people, because they're so constipated, they get brain fog or they have a neurological symptom like MS or Parkinson's. You know, it's not uncommon to see that. Got to connect the dots. So the major causes of constipation really is lifestyle. It's not eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables, not getting enough regular exercise. So age, drugs, pregnancy, surgery, disease, stress, and emotional issues can affect and upset the bowel function. Uh, And we need to add also um, modern society to this list because, you know, people are stressed out. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of times you're allergic to food you're eating, too, that can really make an imbalance happen. Um, For me, it was too much red meat and dairy products. That will slow my bowel down so bad um, and and make you tired, lethargic, kind of make you foggy-headed. So... All right, so Dr. Let's see, John Kellogg says this, the more advanced the nation, the more cases of constipation. Yeah, western part of the planet seems to have more people constipated than any place else. Dr. John Kellogg studied this. He studied bowel malfunction from Asia to Africa, and he also discovered that nations which had people in physical motion And eating healthy plants had better or normal bowel function and elimination. So Dr. Kellogg stated that for every meal that you eat, your bowel should eliminate approximately 30 minutes afterward. He also witnessed that when people from these areas of the world where they get introduced to the Western diet, they begin to experience sluggish bowel function and constipation. So Dr. Kellogg also studied the walk of an unconstipated person and a constipated one. There's a difference in the way they walk. (laughs) Okay, so Dr. Kellogg uh, watched Asians and Africans, and he compared their walk. Um, And he said, and he also compared Europeans. He evaluated them, too. Um, So he says Europeans tend to only go to the bathroom and have a bowel movement a few times per week. And he documented that there was a distinct change in the gait or the walk of someone who was constipated. The unconstipated native, you know, very physically active, eats a lot of plants, would have a very fluid or smooth stride um, to their walk, whereas Europeans have a very stiff, jarring stride to their walk. It was revealed that during the war, guerrilla fighters noticed the difference in the walk of the enemy, and they used that to their advantage. They 
they would spot the soldiers that were their enemies that way. So Western society believes their doctor, and, you know, they think it's normal to have elimination uh, like this only go a few times a, a, a week instead of several times a day. And this is why Western society has a lot of bowel disease by the time they're 50. Okay, so the same could be said for many Western diseases like hypertension, diabetes, erectile dysfunction, and so forth. So our medical doctors describe this malfunction as being average. What? It's not being average. It's being below average. That's not how the body's supposed to function, but it's average to them. Well, it is because it brings in a lot of moolah for their practice. Makes you feel better. Trust the doctor. Okay, I'll take this drug right here. He said I'm average. I'm okay. I'm doing. I'm. I'm relatively healthy. Oh Lord. American America relies on coffee every morning to move their bowel. Goodness, if there was ever an embargo on coffee in this nation, can you imagine? Uh, if there was, if there was a, a, a coffee bean blight of some kind. Or, God forbid, coffee was outlawed, you know, maybe by executive order. I don't know. <laughs> About 88 million Americans would be constipated overnight. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's say, let's, let's talk about this. Let's get serious here. Uh, we have many slang terms describing a person who is constipated, but... In biblical times, people recognized that constipation affected the mind. So people who are constipated are often crabby, out of sorts. Mm-hmm. So if the constipation is chronic, it can actually encourage depression and symptoms similar to Alzheimer's, dementia. So thousands of folks are, are put on a lot of toxic drugs for these conditions when, in fact, they probably could just use a crap and a nap. Sorry, that was too crude. But hey, an ill-functioning bowel allows toxins to affect the brain, the neurotransmitters. People become nervous, tense, anxious, exhibit rigid personalities along with a stiff walk, according to Dr. Kellogg. All right, let's look at this new drug. I mentioned a new drug, remember? Uh, the new drug doctors are using to lessen constipation is called Linesse. A well-known side effect of this drug is diarrhea, which can be very severe. This drug cannot be prescribed for minors, and it is an oral medication designed to move the bowel, but it's not identified as a laxative. So other side effects are gas, severe abdominal pain, swelling, feeling of pressure or fullness of the abdomen, distension, bloody stools or black stools, which would signal liver damage. So this drug does not address the cause of your constipation. It would only produce worse symptoms while it destroys your liver. Oh, constipation's not the worst of your problems, patient so-and-so. Uh, now we have to put you on a organ transplant list. Let's just focus on that for now. Well, in most cases, constipated people are not active enough. They're not eating correctly or they're allergic to something in the diet. So things are not going to change unless some changes are made. So lifestyle is the key 
to a healthy bowel and overall health, and you have that power. It's in your hands. It's not in your doctor's hands. It's not in the nurse's hands. It's not in the Obamacare plant hands. It's in yours. Using laxatives only promote more constipation because the colon is prohibited from functioning by itself. It becomes even lazier. It's sort of like, you know, putting your bowel on food stamps. Why should I go have to go out and work for food when you just give me food stamps? Laxatives, same thing. So there's a way to use herbs to move the bowel, but tone and strengthen a muscle without making it lazy, okay? So there are people who are really dependent on laxatives, too. Goodness. Have you seen them? Well... They are just like hooked on laxatives, just like, you know, I guess popping candy. Oh, my engineer is asking, how much does high dehydration have to do with constipation? It has a lot to do with it because the bowel uses a lot of water to function normally. So if, again, here's the diet, if you're drinking a lot of dehydrating fluids like caffeine beverages like coffee and tea and soda and so forth or alcohol, it's going to have an impact so hydrate, water, water, water. Um, but getting back to this laxative thing, uh, what they do is the, the bowel muscle has to work. It, it has to be a muscle. It has to flex its muscle it has, or it's going to be, you know, atrophy. Lifestyle changes should be made as well as, you know, including more raw foods, raw foods into the diet. Raw fruits and vegetables tend to sweep the bowel. And they, what they do is they also press on the colon wall stimulating the nerve endings inside the colon, and that stimulates the muscle to move and to move out to the stool. So for those with non-active nerve endings, you know, they tend to get deadened when they have chronic constipation and they can't move on by themselves. So um, if you're looking for a non-addictive um, way to move the bowel, if you get in a, in a pickle, um, then you want to check out um, some herbs to do that, and you'll find them in a product called Balcleanse A Formula, just A for apple, and um, and it's in a capsule form. And you just take it after dinner, and it works all night. So in the morning, you should be able to, you know, have that exciting moment without your coffee, and uh, and and just work with that, and watch the diet, and you're able to get this back in, in into into normal limits and control it yourself without a lot of drugs, and without a lot of doctor bills, too. So um, for about $36, you can uh, you can uh, tone up that bowel muscle. And, of course, it's not going to cost you anything to adjust your diet with more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and things like that. And get off the white flour really does impact the bowel. White flour is um, going to get sticky and hard, and you can get a bowel casing and a bowel casing is old fecal matter that kind of just sticks like plaster to the colon wall. So if you do embark on a bowel cleanse, which I believe is what I would do if I was you, uh, that will remove that casing. And therefore, your bowel will be able to absorb more nutrition and you won't overeat and have to eat so much in volume. So a lot of people find they lose weight when they do cleanses of the bowel and do it properly. And when you do your cleanse, you're also going to remove over 2,000 pharmaceutical residues and radioactive particles and heavy metals and, and get rid of the bloating and the gas. Now, if you tend to have real issues, uh, excessive issues with bloating and gas, um, you can use fennel seed. Fennel seed is very good for that. 
if you tend to still be, you know, like an overeater at meals, um, you can use gentian root. That'll stop that. And improved digestion. The enzymes in the digestion is improved. It just makes it a smoother process. So you've got some digestive herbs. You can find them at thepowerherbs.com. And uh, you can call for a free product catalog and just empower yourself. Forget about the scopes and the probes and all that stuff. You got God's good herbs here. Give them a call, 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or go to thepowerherbs.com. All righty. Um, we got a few minutes. We might have to postpone our cancer topic once again because... I did that last time, didn't I? Shame on me. Well, we'll have to include that Thursday. A lot of stuff there. Can't just do it halfway. No. So we're going to save that for next time. So we got a, something here. We're going to talk about some pure proteins that you can get into your diet and really take advantage of them. And I like them because they're easy on the digestion. They give you lots of zip and energy. Um, average protein requirement for most people is about 50 grams. So when protein is referred to, we, what do we think of? Well, we think of animal foods, it's protein sources. We think of steak, four ounces of steak. It's about 40 grams of protein. Fish, about 40 grams. Chicken, about 30. So without protein, our body will convert muscle uh, as a vital energy source, and that's not good. Lose muscle. So without protein, your body can't make thyroid hormones or insulin to balance your metabolism. So protein's important, and we have to get an adequate amount of it because um, um, protein has a lot to do with nearly every part of the body, uh, muscles, blood, skin, hair, nails, heart, brain. So protein's important, but is there a really superior form of protein out there? Well, there is a food source which can provide 50% protein without the unhealthy effects of animal foods. Uh, yes, uh, it's called chlorella. It's easy on the digestive system. It's absorbed right away, converts to amino acids, and it feeds all the cells a lot of energy. And this is really evident when you're measuring uh, a, a special um, amount of protein, a compound. It encourages um, growth. Uh, it encourages repair of your cells. Um, so it has a lot of benefits. So when, when children are given food sources such as chlorella, they, have a, uh, they get more um, benefits in um, dental. They have stronger teeth. Uh, they have less tooth decay. Um, uh, it helps to replenish a lot of the dentin, uh, strengthens the jawbone as well in their developmental stages. So chlorella for kids is really great. Now, concentration of uh, plant proteins uh, when they test them, they, they test their DNA and their RNA, and they found that the, when they did those tests to find out why children do so well with chl chlorella, it helps children to grow to more of a developed size, according to research. So um, they also noticed they have higher IQs and are able to resist illnesses better. So if you live in a very cold climate, um, chlorella is going to help you out because in 1970, there was this Japanese study. They tested um, chlorella with the Marine Defense Fleet. Uh, they had some naval trainees, and they were taking only two grams of chlorella each day for three months. 
and it helped them to resist viruses and unwanted weight changes. Another study done by the Japanese at the University Medical College showed that the chlorella heals wounds in half the time, which are resistant to conventional treatments like antibiotics. So this is especially important for diabetics who usually have you know, difficulty healing wounds because their blood is so full of sugar toxins that heal, resist healing, and you get an ulcer. Now, just think of the healing possibilities of resolving peptic ulcers or gastritis or duodenal ulcers. So world governments and scientists, hey, they've been studying chlorella for years. The U.S. space program used it. Um, it has oxygen benefits, according to them, um, Fortunately, we don't have to be strapped to a rocket and be hurled into outer space to tap into the health benefits of chlorella. But in 1981, Dr. Benjamin Frank did some extensive research on this plant food, and he gave it to his patients, and they were able to reverse degenerative diseases like arthritis, emphysema, heart disease, vision problems, and memory loss and depression. So if you tend to have the COPD, um, if you have macular degeneration and so forth, um, if you have excessive depression, you may be able to just, you know, get out from underneath all that drug management program stuff and get some chlorella. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival uh, Thursday or Wednesday evening edition, uh, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. Uh, let's start with the market report. James Corbett will be our guest. He'll be here after the first break. 
First, we'll do the market report, shoot the breeze a little bit about whatever's going on in the economy. And uh, markets, markets, markets. Gold is down $7.70 today to $1,186. Silver was down $0.27 cents to $16.58 per ounce. Platinum was down $9 to $1,106. Palladium was down $10 to $761. It was a bad day, generally speaking, for the precious metals. But one of the things that interested me about this is that for years now, I'm not sure how long, when you bid on platinum or palladium, you bid on a dollar in dollar increments. All right? It went from 11, uh, currently the price of platinum is 11.06. Uh, The next step would be 11.07 if it were going up, or 11.05 if it were going down. All right? Gold and silver, silver is 16.58, pennies still count on silver pennies nickels and dimes we don't go from sixteen dollars in silver to seventeen dollars to eighteen or down to down to twelve we do sixteen fifty eight sixteen sixty eight sixteen ninety three uh fifteen forty five whatever but i noticed gold and i think this is the second time i've seen this in the last week or two where it's where it's where i've paid attention to it gold today the bid price is 11.85 and the asking price is 11.86 those are just dollar increments they're not having any pennies nickels or dimes today the first time i saw it i thought that was a coincidence it was just interesting because every so often no matter what the whatever you're bidding on or investing in you're going to find the price is going to come down on an exact number and it might be 1,186, or it might be 1,200, or 1,225, or 1,250, or something. And people say, oh, look, we get an exact number. But what gold has been is denominated all the way down. The price would go all the way down to pennies. But this is the second time I've noticed them hitting a dollar figure. No pennies. $1,186 is the price, not $1,186.23 or $0.48 cents or $0.96 cents or whatever. And that's what we've had for years. <clears throat> so the point to all this, I don't have enough evidence to say this is true yet, but it, it may be common knowledge to a bunch of people, but it appears to me that they're moving the gold markets into a a dollar increment basis just like platinum and palladium now it's going to be a while i don't expect silver to move into a dollar increment uh until we get up over 100 bucks it might happen before then but 50 dollars anyway 50 dollar an ounce silver they might go on to just you know 51 52 53 but no 51 28 51 73 none of that pennies are gone nickels are gone dimes are gone quarters are gone Maybe that's happened with gold. Now, I'm not alleging that that's big and big news, but I am saying it's kind of interesting. Today, Dow Jones was up 64 points to 18,078. NASDAQ is up 27 points to 5,099. New York Stock Exchange is up 27 points to 11,108. U.S. dollar index was up 0.1 
to 95.46 on the U.S. dollar index. Uh, and crude oil was down a dime to $59.54 per barrel, <clears throat> which isn't bad. They're right at $60. That's nothing to complain about after what had happened, going all the way from 100 and whatever on down to really down below 45 briefly. And then they popped back up there at 60, and I think they're likely to stay around 60 for some time into the future. What else do we have to converse about today? Here's one. Japan is losing control of the yen. This is from Casey Research. Japanese yen just uh, plunged to a 13-year low against the U.S. dollar. And, you know, we hear this and we think, oh, my gosh, oh, the poor Japanese, they're at a 13-year low. Look, it's a teeter-totter. If they're at a 13-year low, guess what? The U.S. dollar, just if they just plunged to a 13-year low against the U.S. dollar, the U.S. dollar on the other end of the teeter-totter has just soared to a 13-year high against the yen. The yen inflated significantly. The dollar deflated significantly. And the question is, who's really in or out of control? Did the dollar go up in value because the yen went down? Did the Japanese government make the yen go down as a consequence the dollar went up? Or did people in Washington make the dollar go up? Or maybe people in other parts of the world, did they make the dollar go up and as a consequence force the yen down? And which is good and which is bad? Because the governments of the world want inflation. They want their currencies to be devalued in order to make them more competitive in global, in global trade. So they've been constantly trying to prove that their currency, each government is sitting back saying, my currency is worth less than your currency. And the next guy says, oh, no, it's not. Our currency is worth less than yours. And the third guy says, I'm, you're both crazy. We've got the worst currency out here. And it's ironic and bizarre, <clears throat> but it's interesting to me, because here's the headline, Japan is losing control of the yen. And I wonder, I know Japan wants inflation. They want the yen to fall. Uh, relative to the dollar, it'll make it easier to sell Japanese goods into this country. So who is in or out of control here? The, the, the yen did fall. The, uh, the government of Japan wants it to fall. Is that evidence that Japan is out of control? Or it's evidence that they're in control. In the brave new world of fiat currency, where we, where we are currently resident, these are the kinds of questions that may sound silly and, I don't know, confusing. But they're, they're evidence or manifestation of the kind of world we live in. We live in a world that is bizarre. It is increasingly, you know, we, you know, it's it's a little bit like Alice in Wonderland, and we're running into the Cheshire Cat, also known as Janet Yellen, and you know, a number of strange critters and creatures, and what are they up to, and what do they want? But they don't seem to be behaving in ways that most people would regard as normal. The article continues. It says Japanese and U.S. monetary policy are going in opposite directions. While the Fed is threatening to tighten, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is deliberately debasing the yen. 
He's hoping a weaker yen will kill deflation and jumpstart Japan's economy. Japan's been in the toilet for most of, they've been in or near the toilet for most of 20 years now. They were the hottest thing around back, you know, a generation ago. And they stumbled into this era of deflation, and they haven't been able to get out. Deflation is typically associated with an economy that is at least in recession and arguably in depression. More typically, if you you are in a genuine deflation, you'll typically see that the currency is deflated. And if you see deflation, it's generally speaking evidence that your economy is in or near an economic depression. Uh, so the Japanese are trying to kill deflation, and they're getting their wish. They're getting in, they're getting inflation, so they would seem to be in control or at least lucky. Um, the article says things will get ugly if Bank of Japan loses control of the yen. So far, the weak yen hasn't helped Japan's real economy. Uh, but it's turbocharged Japan's stock market. It's kind of like here. They tried to pump all of that currency into this, uh, under the guise of quantitative easing, into the U.S. economy. And several trillion dollars were allegedly pumped in or near, at least into the banks. And in theory, it was supposed to reach the U.S. economy, but it never had much positive effect, as with Japan. And point of, one of the points here, one of the implications is we're left to wonder, can the government kill deflation? That's what they're saying here. Uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is deli- deliberately debasing the yen. He's hoping a weaker yen will kill deflation. They've been trying to kill deflation for 20 years without success. Here in this country, our government tried, they injected trillions of dollars into our economy in hopes that it would stimulate the economy by causing more inflation. But for the most part, the economy is just kind of flatlined. Hasn't gone up much, hasn't gone down much since the 2008, well, since we more or less settled out of the out of the 2008 Great Recession. We never really got out of it, but we didn't fall any further, any deeper into it. And it's been steady. The economy has simply been steady, stagnant, not hot, not particularly warm, but tolerable. Well, insofar as that's true, it's evidence that we are also engaged in less inflation than we wanted, less than the Federal Reserve wanted. They wanted, they were shooting for 2%. They could never seem to get it. They still haven't had it, to my, to my knowledge. They're looking for that 2%, can't seem to get it. And we've seen evidence that at least in, re, in regard to the U.S. dollar index, which measures the purchasing power of the dollar against six other foreign currencies, on the on an international level, the dollar has deflated dramatically in the last year. We've had up to 25% deflation. The dollar is worth 25% more oh, a month or two ago than it was a year before that. It gained that much in value. It deflated, and when it did, it made American exports more expensive. It helped to reduce 
American exports. It helped to increase American unemployment. Um, and deflation, of course, creates an enormous burden for borrowers. Most people who've ever borrowed money from the bank to buy a home, you've been told that you'll be able to, part of the way you justify taking out the loan is you're told that you'll be able to repay the loan in cheaper dollars. Now, the bank doesn't tell you that, but some of your friends do. Somebody's encouraging, well, you'll be able to pay the loan off in cheaper dollars, meaning that because if you borrow $100 today and you have to five years to pay it off, the government is constantly trying to inflate the currency, make it less value, less valuable, less valuable. And by the time you pay your $100 back, you pay $100, but they may only buy $90 worth of goods and services as compared to the $100 you borrowed. They may only have $90 purchasing power due to inflation, and therefore it's a good deal to borrow money during a period. When you can count on inflation, it's a good idea to go, go ahead, borrow, go to go into debt, pay off the debt with cheaper dollars. But if we go into an era of deflation, right, where the dollar gains value, now you borrow 100 bucks, pay it off in five years. By the time you get to the end of the five years, it may be that your $100, you're still going to pay back $100, but they may have $110 in purchasing power. You are essentially overpaying, even though you're paying the nominal sum is 100 borrowed, 100 paid, repaid. In terms of purchasing power, you are overpaying, and when that and when you make a habit of overpaying, you're going to go broke. Right? It's deflation will tend to push you into bankruptcy. Deflation will tend to push your economy into depression. And Japan is a perfect example. They've had it for 20 years, and they haven't been able to shake it. And we are seeing evidence that we're sliding into that deflation also. The dollar is gaining value, and it's not helping the economy. So, and as it says, again, here's in the article from Casey Research, it says the weekend hasn't helped Japan's real economy. Employment isn't improving, and wages aren't rising. But it has turbocharged the stock market, pretty much like it has in this country. Huh? Well, we've seen the stock market turbocharged to some degree in the last year or two. Um does it follow that inflation caused the Japanese stock market to soar? If that's true, does it follow that deflation could cause the U.S. stock market to collapse? And the answer is probably maybe. And maybe even stronger than that. Maybe even probably maybe, maybe. Uh, point to all of this. The, the article says Japan's not in control of the yen. I'm not convinced that anyone can be in control of any digital currency. I'm beginning to suspect that digital currencies are by their nature so slippery that they are perhaps beyond the ability of the Federal Reserve or the government, the federal government to control, or the government of Russia or China or any other place. You know, we see these stories of hackers in Romania, in Ukraine, in Russia, in China, who hacked into credit cards, bank accounts, Target. They got grabbed something like, I don't remember, several tens of millions of credit card accounts were penetrated uh, by means of Target. 
right? And they've done similar attacks, assaults um, on other major businesses here in the United States. Now, I think the point to these hacking attacks is showing us how vulnerable digital currency can be. You know, if you've got physical currency like gold and silver, you can't, it's not easy to steal gold and silver. You think, oh, yeah, all you got to do is knock the guy on the head and take the gold and run out of the bag of gold and run out the door. Well, yeah, but you do have to knock somebody on the head. And you do have to get on your horse and you have to ride and ride and ride and hope you get away and the rest of that sort of thing with your bag of gold. It's not easily done. Where? With digital currency, you can steal millions. And you don't even have to knock somebody on the head. They don't even get to see you. You're just in there for a, a fraction of a second. You remove millions of dollars. In theory, it's at least it's theoretically possible. And the money, the currency is gone. I don't think you can control a digital currency. I think this is one of the lessons that we're going to learn. It's an idea that I'll explore more in the future. But I think if you want to control currency, I think you have to have physical currency like gold and silver or at least paper currency, which takes a few days. I send you a check in the mail. All right, it's, I'll put the checkers in the mail. How many have heard it? You know you're not going to get it for several days. There's a delay that's built into physical. There's no delay built into digital. I think it makes it uncontrollable. We'll explore this idea more in the future. We're going to take a break for some commercial announcements. When I return, James Corbett will be here, and we will talk about maybe a little of safe. Please stay tuned. financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. 
If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Folks, I'm Alfred Adams. This is Financial Survival brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188 for all your gold and silver coin needs. Our guest this evening is Mr. James Corbett from the Corbett Report. James will be speaking to us from his home in Japan. And uh, James is knowledgeable and, you know, articulate on Almost any subject we're likely to to uh, discuss involving economics or politics. Good evening, James. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. You flatter me, good sir. How are you, Mr. Alfred uh, I'm good, good, good. I guess, you know, what can I tell you? Uh, at my age, it's hard to tell sometimes whether, you, you, whether you're doing well or you're not doing well, but I think I'm doing okay. Hey, it's actually morning where you are. It is indeed. Yeah, it's it's evening here. What time is it actually where you are? It is just going on for 11.30 in the morning. All right, so we're 10 hours difference or thereabouts. Well, did you say 10.30 or 11.30? 11.30. Yeah, all right. All right, it's 9.30 where I am or 9.25 where I am right now. Um, in any case, there's an article from D.C. Clothesline. And it says, secret meeting in London to end cash. Central banks aim to institute governmental approval for all purchases and sales. We've seen this. We are uh, concerned the government is going to try to implement that cashless society. And I think we talked a little about this last week, but I don't recall if we considered the slipperiness term I'm just using of digital currency. And what I'm trying to say is this. What I'm, what, what's crossed my mind is when we have a gold and silver-based monetary system, it takes time and effort to move your gold or silver from one place to another because they are physical materials. Right? When even when we move to a paper-based monetary system, it takes time to move that paper around. You can carry it in your wallet, hand it to the clerk or whatever, and the clerk is going to hand it to the take the drawers and collect them and send them up to the accountant and they'll fool around with it. It, it. it takes a while before it gets to the bank. But when you're dealing with the digital currency, because it doesn't have a physical reality beyond ones and zeros on, a, on some hard drive, it can move around the world at the speed of light. 
cross oceans. As soon as you go in to buy a tube of toothpaste at the grocery store, you put that card in there, bang, you give it a swipe, and the transaction is already at your bank account. It's, the inventory has been changed for the, for the grocery store. All sorts of things happen, and almost instantly with that digital currency. Now, what I'm wondering is, if digital currency is that, that slippery, all right, that fast, is it possible to, to, for government to create real currency controls over a purely digital system? Or how long would it take for Bill and Hillary, for example, to figure a way to move a million dollars from Arkansas to Paris at the speed of light? Do you mm. see what I'm saying here? I do, yeah. No, you raise an, a number of interesting points there, so let me knock off a few of them if I can. Um, the first, okay. regarding the uh, the end of cash and the criminalization of cash that we've been discussing here, I would just like to point people to corporatereport.com to a, an article that I had up uh, a couple of weeks ago on this to- topic called The Criminalization of Cash, where one of the Corporate Report uh, subscribers is uh, in the comment section leaving links to all of these various organizations and, uh, and, and news stories t- talking about the end of cash, cashless paradigm, all of these uh, various organizations and companies and, 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 uh, and foundations that are moving towards this. So that's a valuable resource if people want to check that out. But uh, I guess one of the things that this topic raises is the question of what money fundamentally actually is. And I think we have to keep in mind that money is really just a tool, even a technology, I guess you could say, although technology makes us think of electronic gadgets. But I I mean, just in the sense of a a tool that helps us to accomplish something. And in this case, it is meant to help us facilitate the, the exchange of goods from one person to another. So in that sense, the idea of electronic currency and, and everything being digital, well, that makes it just that much more easy to transfer things around. As you say, we don't have to physically trans, transport gold or, or paper or anything. We can just use these gadgets to, to move things around wirelessly and seamlessly. So in a sense, that helps to facilitate those transactions. And, 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 and if all things being equal, hey, that would be a good thing. But of course, not all things are equal. And one of the aspects to this is the psychology behind not actually having a physical object that you were hang, handing over actually makes you more inclined to spend more. And this is, of course, something that's been well understood since at least the time of the introduction of the credit card. And people are happy to swipe that card all day long even if they don't have money, because they don't feel like they are spending money. If you were physically taking money out of your wallet and handing it over every time you pay for something, mm-hmm. you were less likely to, uh, to, pay, uh, to pay exorbitant amounts. But if you are just swiping a card, you are more likely to, to spend money that you don't have. And I think this is something that has been well understood for a long time. So it is in the interests of uh, a consumerist, consumer-driven society that's always trying to find ways to part people with their money to make this money into an extremely easy-to-spend easy to uh, commodity. Um, and then the other aspect of this that you raise, which I think is exceptionally important, is that, of course, ultimately a cashless society would be in so many ways, it would make it so easy to facilitate laundering of uh, these funds. Because although laundering. in some sense... Stealing. Well, I mean, it, hackers are grabbing this stuff from different You're continents. exactly right, yes. No, you're right. And uh, how, how do we have currency controls if kids that are barely at high school are smart enough to, re- to rob millions from people who are on another continent? 
Well, let's let's put this into perspective. I think like all of these other technological problems, there are a very, very small number of people who actually really know how to hack into these systems and to do those amazing things. And of course, there will be some, you know, young high school geniuses who can do that, but not not the majority of them. That's still the purview of a very small number of people. But the point is that those people who really do understand how these systems work and who are generally either the ones devising the systems or being the ones hacking into them from the outside are the ones who will be able to control that. And if they are smart about it and act in a smart cartel fashion about it, they could act behind the scenes without most people really noticing what's going on, without realizing that the entire system is really gamed by the people who kind of have the keys to the vault, if you will. Of course, we're talking virtual keys to a virtual vault, but I think the analogy still holds. And uh, and in in that regard, of course, it's going to be the well-connected political and financial elite like the Clintons or whoever who will have access to the people who know how to do this and will be able to, to facilitate these types of transactions, let alone, of course, what's done by the big you know, the big agencies, the CIA or whoever who needs to facilitate some sort of black op operation, how much easier is it in a world of cashless uh, payments where you don't have to commit some crazy Iran-Contra scheme? You can just cook up some digital ones and zeros and send them wherever you need them to be. So uh, it raises all sorts of issues that uh, the public hasn't thought about very well. But I guarantee you the the Rand Corporation and, and, uh, and organizations like that have thought about this at, at great length. You know, I, I I disagree with you to this extent. I don't think it's going to be that rare for people to understand how to hack in and take money that they haven't earned. And I say that because all of these digital monetary systems depend on not just having ATM machines at every at every Seven Eleven. They depend on connections that are there at the at the checkout uh, counter for every store in the country. They depend on having connections where you can do your banking. I can do I can do electronic banking from my home computer. And what I'm trying to say is that when the system is that accessible. 200 million people can access this system here in this country. How do you restrict it to make sure that no crooks are among the 200 million? If you're going to make it sufficiently user-friendly where 200 million can access, I don't think you can maintain a sufficient security to protect, you know, uh, against against a fairly widespread problem uh, in any case we'll watch and see it's something to well well let to me let me comment on that because i think there is an answer to that and it's very counterintuitive i understand it's counterintuitive but it's it's very interesting that the most the the, the most effective way to secure a, an electronic system like that is to make it open and by that i mean to make the source code for whatever you're doing an open source uh source code so that people Anyone can look into it and see what's happening. And that sounds ridiculous because then, of course, then the hackers will have the the source code and they'll know exactly what's happening. They'll be able to. But in fact, when you look at the ways that uh, really secure software is designed, it's designed through open source principles so that you have 
everyone looking at the code, everyone who's able to look at the computer code, looking at the code, looking for flaws and exploits in the security systems, and then upgrading them and, and trying to patch them over. So, of course, you do have the criminals who have access to that as well, but you also have the vast majority of people who are looking to protect their information and protect and make sure it is secure. And that's, of course, it's not a fail-proof uh, system. It's, it's going to, uh, there are going to be flaws and, and things, and they'll have to be discovered. But the only way to do that is to to leave it open for everyone to access and that again i know that sounds counterintuitive but that's actually the most effective way to design and that is how all of the most secure systems are designed i mean this is a theoretical if you look at all of the the open uh the sorry the uh, the operating systems that the backbone of the internet and and the most stable systems run on it is open source software so this really is a design principle that it uh, doesn't make a lot of sense until you actually start thinking about it. But yes, you you open it up to everyone, and uh, and that. that's I the get way that, we secure but it. But nevertheless, uh, you know, everyone, if we see a flaw, <laughs> there's some people are going to say, "I saw a flaw," <laughs> and they're going to say, "Well, thank you very much," and we're going to make that correction. And other of people, of course, yes, say, and that's exactly why it only takes one person to see the flaw and I blow the whistle. Download. I think I can download twenty million dollars to my account in Bali and uh, kick back for the rest of my life. Um, my main point, though, is that because digital is so slippery, because it has no tangible reality, no physical reality, it's going to be hard to control. I don't know that they can make effective currency controls. I know they'll be able to make currency controls that will restrict the activities of the local pizza delivery man and the girl who's working as a secretary for some guy who sells insurance. I get that. But can they stop Bill and Hillary from moving millions around the world without people being aware? And if it were gold, I'd say, yeah, that's possible. If it were even paper, I'd say, yeah, that's possible. Digital, I wonder. I think it's too slick for them. And if I'm right, it raises a real interesting question. We're just talking today with a guy named uh, Rob West, and he was pointing out how he thought the banking system, he'd been in the financial business for decades. And he pointed out that he would not teach people today what he believed to be true, you know, up until a few years ago. He said, this thing has changed. The banking system has changed. I'm wondering, has the banking system changed or has the currency changed? Are we seeing differences between today and what happened in the 1950s? Are those differences because the banking laws are different or are they different because we are dealing with a digital currency rather than a fiat currency rather than gold and silver? Do you have a, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think there has to be a certain element of both of those, but I think probably the overriding, well, I, I don't know, I'm not speaking from experience here, but I would imagine that the overriding change in the last several years has been the, the real takeover of the economy by the central banks. And of course, they've always been there and they've always been operating, but the way that they are operating right now is really unlike anything we've seen before in the history of humanity. And it really is changing changing markets completely, utterly. Um, we, we now have really no way whatsoever to discover what the true value of a, a market is at this point, given the, the incredible amount of manipulation we've seen by the central banks over the last several years. And I think that's got to completely fundamentally change the game for investment bankers and bankers generally. Do you think that manipulation would be possible without a digital currency, or at least a fiat currency and uh, arguably a digital currency? 
Yes. Well, uh, yeah. And and again, what to the same yeah. extent they do it with uh, fiat. Well, we've had digital currency of one form or another for quite a while now. If you think about it, I mean, checkbook money is in a sense that not that fundamentally different from the the electronic currencies that we're getting now. It's always been just sort of you know numbers in a in a book somewhere. Now they're just numbers on a in a database somewhere. So I I don't know if that's such a but they don't move fundamental the change in terms of the Somebody's way the banking. Got to, someone's still got to put that check in the mail. It takes a few days to process. That digital currency right now, you know, it's moving basically at the speed of light. And it has no mass. <laughs> it doesn't get lost in a fire or whatever. It's, it, it, it can be instantly erased. But <laughs> it doesn't catch fire and burn like a dollar bill. You're not going to find any tycoons lighting their cigars <laughs> with digital dollars, if you see what I'm talking about. Um We've got it. It's time for us to a little bit premature here. We're about 45 seconds early, but let's take a break. A couple of commercial announcements. And James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. We'll be back in just a moment. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now.
folks. I'm Alfred Addis here on Financial Survival with my guest, James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Um, here's, a, here's an article from uh, 24H Gold. And it says, China nears global reserve status. There will be a reset of the financial industry. What they're talking about is the world is anticipating a new global reality with huge implications. China's yuan is posed to be recognized as a global reserve currency. How significant is this? And what is, are we going to see, some people think we're going to see an almost instantaneous fall in the value of the, the fiat dollar. Um, if this reset, is there going to be a re, is First, is the yuan going to be recognized as as a global reserve currency? And if so, will it cause, will it have a dramatic effect, or will it be just something that sort of takes takes effect over a period of at least months and maybe years? Um, Yes and yes. So uh, will the yuan become a type of reserve currency? Well, in an indirect sense, yes. Uh, the I've, I think we've talked about this before, but just to, to make it clear, the International Monetary Fund operates something called special drawing rights, which is a type of currency that is held by, uh, by, by central banks as a reserve currency. But it's not a currency in and of itself. All it is is a, it's a claim to one of four different types of currency, dollars, yen, uh, pounds, sterling, and euros. And, uh, and that's the basket of currencies that make up the SDR. So if a central bank is holding the, an, uh, an SDR, it can claim a certain amount of dollars or a certain amount of yen or a certain amount. So it can convert those, uh, those SDRs into those currencies. And uh, China is going to or is angling to get the yuan included in that basket of currencies so that it would be the dollar, the yen, the euro, the pound and the yuan. Um, if China has its way, and that will be uh, taking place later this year, the IMF is going to be examining the basket. They do this every five years to see if they need to reweight the basket and if they need to include or exclude any currencies from it. So we'll find out later this year, and it's looking more and more like the yuan will be added, if not this time around, at least uh, by the next time around in 2020. So in, in that indirect sense, then, the Chinese yuan will be a type of reserve currency in that the SDRs will be redeemable in yuan. Uh, will this make a difference? Well, will this happen overnight in a way that, that uh, completely eclipses the U.S. dollar? Of course not. Of course not. But it will be one step towards further legitimizing this idea of a basket reserve currency rather than a reserve currency that is the single unitary monopolar dollar. It's a move away from that towards this multilateral system where it's it's more stable because there are instead of having one leg, this this chair has four legs and soon to be five legs. So it, it's more inherently more stable, or at least that's the idea. Of course, as I think you and I and the listening audience can understand, this is a step towards the uh, creation of uh, regional and even global currency of a sort. Um, again, not the type of currency that you and I would ever interact with directly in our day-to-day lives, but one that is kind of backing up the system behind the scenes. And that can be, that can be very important for a number of reasons. Um, one of the obvious impl- implications of this is that the yuan would become more in demand and more used in international trade. And of course, it would also mean that the AIIB could be supported 
uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that China is setting up right now could be supported directly through yuan rather than through dollars, which uh, it is, I, I understand it is being capitalized in initially. So we may see that shift away from the dollar. But again, it will take years, I think, for it to happen. Uh, and it's a, it's a general waning of the dollar that has been going on for a number of years now and will likely continue for the foreseeable future. Is China the big winner if China joins this group of four currencies, becomes the fifth that are considered part of the the special drawing rights? Is China, do they need, does China need to be validated by the IMF? Or does the IMF need to bring China in? Because if they don't, the four remaining currencies may, may, may wither without China giving them more strength, more credibility. You see, do you follow what I'm saying? Which I do. Glass I think half empty or half full. Right. Well, which which glass? I think no matter which way you slice it, uh, humanity is generally the losers in in this. But uh, but yes, uh, I, I see your point, and I think it, it is ultimately a question more of the IMF uh, gaining in importance and gaining in uh, stature and gaining in credibility rather than it is that China necessarily needs this to take place. Mm -hmm. And I think it could be a mutual beneficial relationship for them, especially because there have been some reforms on the IMF agenda for a number of years now that have been being stalled by Washington specifically. Uh, Washington has been dragging its feet on these IMF reforms that would give China a bigger seat at the IMF table. And uh, this after the fact that uh, during the euro crisis a few years ago, when uh, Christine Lagarde went on her little fundraising tour trying to raise money, I believe China stepped up to the plate with some ridiculous amount of money, $50 billion or something for the emergency bailout fund. And uh, the understanding really was that this was going to help expedite those IMF reforms. And uh, that hasn't happened so far. So one would imagine that if China is added to the SDR basket, they would have a, a more pull within that organization, which has been since its inception, has been quite explicitly a Washington consensus organization. And uh, of course, America has always picked the the president of the World Bank and Europe has always picked the, the director of the IMF. And uh, we may see in the future, if China is sort of included and folded into this basket and brought into the fold, they may get a bigger seat at the table, they may even be able to to appoint a director now and then or something along those lines, which would give sort of more credibility to the IMF in an age where the U.S. and uh, the West is declining in economic importance and the East is rising, or at least that's the script that we're being handed right now. I've seen reports that China, China, the official story is that they have a little over a thousand tons of gold. A lot of people seem to think they've got at least 10,000 tons of gold. Some people think they may have 30,000 tons of gold. One of the things, everybody understands that China's got a lot of gold, although we don't know what the number is. We know they've got a bunch of gold. Why do they have it? What do they expect to gain? They didn't buy that just for ballast in their boat. What did they expect to gain with that gold? What did they expect to gain or what did they hope to stop from losing might yeah, be whatever. the other way to put what, it. I mean, it wasn't just, it's, it's, it wasn't just, gee, isn't that pretty? It's yellow and it's shiny and oh, kind of heavy. I think I'll collect some. This is, 
I have to believe that they are using gold as a tool, as a lever. They are saying, you know, Archimedes, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand. The, the, the Chinese are saying, give me a stack of gold high enough and I can move the world. Or at least I suspect that's their intent. They have to have a reason to, to acquire all of that gold. What is well, their reason? Well, I think that we have to understand that because of China's trade surplus over the years, they've accumulated an incredible amount of money in reserves. And we all know that they bought up a trillion dollars of U.S. treasuries over that time and have stopped doing so. They still have a trade surplus. They still have money that they are gaining from all of this trade that they have to do something with. And they can't just bring it back into the country because, of course, that would flood their own domestic markets and, and uh, create uh, havoc for in, in terms of inflation of the yuan. So what do you do with those reserves? And I think there are a few different answers to this that China is trying to use right now. I mean, one is that you can just continue buying U.S. debt and, and supporting the U.S. government till the cows come home. But Perhaps more strategically, you can do things like starting an infrastructure investment bank where you take some of these tens of billions of dollars and instead of just parking them in a bank somewhere or parking them in treasuries, you start using them, spending them into the economies of your neighbors to build up infrastructure there so that you have uh, other trading partners to go to rather than simply the U.S. You can also, of course, put it in gold. If you are uh, concerned about the U.S. dollar itself and the stability of that system, or potentially if you have, say, a trillion dollars worth of uh, debt holdings of a country that you were planning to dump somewhere along the road, you can't just dump them. You can't do that unless you are uh, willing to take not only a trillion dollar hit to yourself and the loss of your biggest trading partner, but the disruption of the global economy generally and what would undoubtedly be an inferno that would burn up every fiat currency on the planet unless you have something backing that up in the background, not necessarily explicitly tied to the value of your currency, but something that you could trot out when and if needed to say, hey, look, we have 20,000 tons or whatever you need to say at that time to stabilize your economy. So there's a lot of different reasons. Again, it's speculation from the outside, but uh, I, there's no, there's no uh, happy, happy reason for this, that there's going to be some you know, wonderful thing. It's, it's only to prevent disaster and or to, uh, to bring that disaster about as a type of secret weapon. You recently interviewed Michael Chesedovsky on global warfare and the New World Order. Now, I haven't heard that interview, but I am interested in what you learned or what, you, what, what kind of opinions you came to. I mean, do we need nuclear weapons to fight a global war in the, uh, um, or in the New World Order? Or can we get it done by just attacking somebody's currencies uh, or their computer systems, their, um, you know, their monetary system, their digital currencies? What do we have to do? Do we need nuclear weapons, or can we get this done more in a more sophisticated manner by a couple of keystrokes? Well, that is, that is really an important question, and one that I hope people will check into an interview or a roundtable discussion I had uh, about a year ago um, on uh, a World War III cometh. And basically, in that discussion, myself and Guillermo Jimenez and uh, Pierce Redmond were discussing this 
this topic of World War III and what it might look like if and when it eventuates, and how uh, in World War I, basically, everyone was trying to fight the wars of the 19th century before they realized, oh, we're in the 20th century mm-hmm. now, and the technology is completely different. It's a completely different uh, ballgame. In World War II, they were trying to prepare for World War I trench warfare, and suddenly that didn't work at all, and they had to completely revise what they were thinking. And one would imagine World War III will be the same. And in this case, it may not even be the type of uh, military uh, carnage that we saw in those wars. It could be something completely different, like economic warfare and cyber warfare. There are many different ways to wage warfare uh, these days that are technologically enabled that don't really look like warfare as we've known it before. So I think that's an important point to bring up. Uh, does, so does uh, is nuclear uh, warfare necessary in, in terms of waging global warfare? It certainly isn't. But the interesting part is that since uh, at least 2000. Two, I believe it was, the, uh, the United States official nuclear uh, policy is that they reserve first strike nuclear uh, uh, strikes on, uh, get with tactical nuclear weapons. So they've, they've baked this into the cake for at least 15 years now uh, in terms of policy documents, stra- strategy documents that are on record saying that they, they reserve the right to begin a nuclear war, basically, with these tactical nukes, these so-called mini-nukes that are, aren't as big as the big, you know, 100 megaton giant bombs. These if are it only tiny knocks little down bombs. half a city, it doesn't really count as a nuclear attack. Got to knock out the whole city. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering whether we're not already in that World War III. Do you think we are? I mean... The implication yeah, we well, can fight that mm-hmm. war in ways that are no longer violent. It may right. be that you're talking about fighting the world with World War II. We fought it the way we 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 think we should have fought World War One, and so on. Do we need aircraft yeah. carriers? You know, or are they foolish? Um, can things be accomplished while well, we're building aircraft carriers? Is somebody just working on a better virus, computer virus? Or real virus, even. Uh, Race-specific bioweapons has been proposed by the Project for a New American Century with uh, Dick Cheney et al. back in uh, the early 2000s, shortly before 9-11. So uh, that's something that's been talked about for decades. Um, Yes, I I, I think that the the, the measurement of militaries in terms of number of troops or number of aircraft carriers or number of missiles or that type of thing is outdated and reflects outdated thinking. Uh, And I think that would be become very apparent if and when we got into a hot war scenario with uh, some of the world's military superpowers, when some of the the things that have been worked on behind the scenes that the public hasn't been exposed to yet will suddenly be unveiled to the public, whatever they may be, whether they're weather manipulation technologies or uh, electromagnetic uh, uh, types of weapons or, or, or things of that nature that just completely beggar our imagination. I mean, let's remember World War II ended with with the uh, dropping of the atom bomb, something that wasn't even conceivable by the majority of the public before that war started. And then suddenly it was just a fait accompli at the end of the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we'll see something similar if and when we get into that hot war scenario. I guess World War III, is it here? Are we in it? it? That can be a question of semantics. But I think when the real, true, hot global war starts, if and when it does, I don't think we'll be asking that question. I think it will be quite apparent. I agree with it'll probably be. I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, but we are in a in a gray area right now where you could be at war, and it might not be abundantly clear that there's a real war going on. We used to talk about the Cold War. Now we are perhaps in the digital war. 
And it's not anywhere near as apparent as hot war, and maybe not even as apparent as cold war. I mean, the Stuxnet virus um, that attacked, what, Iranian, Iranian uh, uh, nuclear facilities, if I recall correctly. Uh, there's war going on here in strange ways. and We live in an increasingly unusual and interesting world. I want to thank you for being on the program. As always, James, this is James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. I'm Alfred Adisk. This is Financial Survival. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Good night. All day to pay the bills I have to pay. Painting fast. Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too fast. In my dream, I have a plan. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a ball. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. 
If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communicated.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.